show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to maths teacher and creator of the incredible MathSpot website, Jonathan Hall. But just before we dive into all of that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by Cambridge Assessment. Cambridge Assessment comprises of OCR, Cambridge Assessment International Education and Cambridge Assessment English. Here's a good fact for you. They are the oldest exams groups still in existence and the only one attached to a university. Now, Cambridge Assessment International Education operates in more than 10,000 schools in over 160 countries. Why am I telling you all this, I hear you say? Well, because Cambridge Assessment are looking to support their growth by working alongside committed, passionate individuals who share their values and believe in the importance of high-quality education. In other words, the listeners of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast. Now, as an assessment specialist with Cambridge Assessment, you will gain an insight into the teaching and assessment of Cambridge qualifications around the world, including Cambridge IGCSE and Cambridge International AS and A-Level. Examining opportunities fit around their June and November series. Now, being an assessment specialist with Cambridge Assessment comes with training and support and professional development and networking opportunities. It's a freelance opportunity to create extra income with payment per script marked. Marking is online and remote, which gives you the flexibility to fit around your existing home and work-life commitments. Now, aside from the obvious monetary benefits, having been an assessor myself, I reckon there are three other reasons to strongly consider doing something like this. First off, there is the benefit to you as a teacher in being better informed about your subject. I remember whenever I was first marking GCSE, looking through papers and particularly answers is fascinating. Seeing where students go wrong, seeing the stronger answers, seeing what gets marks and what doesn't get marks, it really enhanced my planning going forward. And that feeds on to the second benefit, and that's benefit for the students of people who do this assessment. Because what I'm able to do with increased credibility is say, look, if you write this, this is a really strong answer. If you set your work out like this, you are least likely to make a mistake. You're more likely to pick up those method marks and so on. My kids used to love it when I could actually share proper stories and proper examples from some of the scripts that I've been able to mark. And the third benefit is benefit to your colleagues and the school as a whole. It gives the teacher such a better understanding of mark schemes and how to apply them. We've been lucky enough in the last few years in my school in Bolton to have quite a few assessment specialists within the department. And departmental meetings have never been better because, again, we can share insights about where cohorts of students have gone wrong. And then as a department, we can say, 
right, what are we going to do as a team to make sure our students don't fall into that trap? Or how are we going to learn from some of the best scripts that have been answered? And we can only do that because we've got insight from our internal assessment specialists. So hopefully that's whet your appetite for at least finding out a little bit more about this exciting opportunity. So for more details and to apply, simply visit cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners. That's cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes page. heard this podcast is kindly sponsored by Cambridge Assessment but Cambridge Assessment also sponsored my MathsConf 23 conference takeaway podcast that I released prior to this one and following that episode I had quite a few tweets from people saying things like look we do Edexcel at GCSE or we do AQA at GCSE is there any point me uh, applying to be an assessor with a different awarding body and my take on that is yeah definitely because all experience is good experience but also you get get to see a whole new bank of questions, a whole new way of asking questions that you may think, oh, I'll definitely want to use those with my students. We know exams are becoming increasingly unpredictable. So bringing in a few curveballs from different awarding bodies, I think is a super smart idea. And also just the more you get to see how students approach different questions, what gets them marks, what doesn't, really good ways of, of setting out work, really, perhaps even different methods for approaching different topics, I think can only be a good thing. So if you've got the time and you've got the inclination follow the link on the podcast episode show notes page and give that a go Anyway, back to today's episode with Jonathan Hall. Jonathan is a lead practitioner at Leeds City Academy, a school where he's been teaching for 13 years and also held the role of head of maths in the past. That's something we talk about in the episode. Jonathan now also works part-time as a CPD lead for LaSalle Education. But Jonathan is perhaps best known as the creator of the incredible MathSpot website. Many teachers first stop when they need anything from randomly generated questions to sets of virtual algebra types. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. What's Jonathan's favourite failure and what did he learn from the experience? And this is a cracker. How does Jonathan feel teaching has changed over the last 15 years? How did MathSpot start and which part of it does he wish people used more of? Why does Jonathan feel so passionately about the use of visuals and manipulatives? And how do you balance using physical versus using online visuals? What does it mean to behave mathematically? And what are some of the challenges of running these kind of activities in the classroom? And then finally, what's an example of something important that Jonathan has changed his mind about? Now, Jonathan has been on my list of guests I've wanted to have on the show for many years, and I'm so pleased we finally managed to set it up. Jonathan's experience, modesty, and ability to communicate the ideas he believes in so passionately make for a cracking conversation. It's just a shame he's from the wrong side of the Pennines, but you can't have it all. Two quick mentions before we start. Um, firstly, um, I don't make too big a deal of this, and this is my fault. Um, I have a loyal band of Patreon supporters who sign up to uh, buy me a Mellowbirds a month via the Patreon website. Um, there'll be a link to this in the show notes. It's patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. Now, recently, I've done two things to, to thank these uh, Patreon subscribers. The first is I've given them a free pass to any of my online courses that they should choose to, to have a go at. Um, and if you haven't taken up that, 
that offer and you're a Patreon subscriber, just check your emails. You should have a message or just get in contact and I can set you up with that. But also I've used some of the funds, not only to cover the hosting costs, which is uh, of this podcast, which is where the majority of the Patreon funds go to, but I had a little bit left over. So what I've decided to do is to try and up the audio quality of the podcast. And this is the first episode where I've gone for this. So usually I interview my guests over Skype, but Skype is so 2019, right? So first, uh, then I tried Zoom. So the last episode I did with Joe Morgan, the MassConf Takeaway, we tried Zoom. And I wasn't quite happy with that. I was dead excited about that, but it didn't quite work. So I've done a load of research and it turns out that Zencaster is what everybody's talking about in the world of podcasts. So um, I've I've upped the ante and I've uh, taken out a bit of a subscription with those. And I've given it a go recording this episode with Jonathan. So hopefully um, those audio files among you will notice a, a, an improvement in the audio quality of this interview. And as I learn a bit more about this and tweak my microphone settings, fingers crossed, though, the interviews will come to you clearer and crisper than ever. So that's the first thing. So a massive thank you to all of those who support me at Patreon. There's no obligation to do this. I will continue to do these podcasts for free because I absolutely love doing them. But if you did want to support the podcast, there is a link to the Patreon page in the show notes. And thank you so much to all my loyal supporters. And the second thing I just wanted to mention is just a shout out again to my online courses um, at Craig Barton. Dot po, uh, at <laughs> Craig Barton at Bo, God, it'd help if I actually remembered the uh, the address of this. Craigbarton.podia.com. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. I've now completed recording all my seven big online courses. That's from focusing thinking, atomization, worked examples, intelligent practice, problem solving, retrieval, formative assessment. There's loads of those there. And each course uh, will be something that I would normally spend a full day doing on CPD and in workshops. But as I've gone ahead and recorded these courses, I've been able to fit loads more into them. So it'd probably take me two days, I'd say, to do each one um, in a in a physical setting. But also there's loads of advantages, not just in terms of the depth I can go into. I can also use the platform to link to research, to podcasts, to websites, to to episodes, to activities, to loads of different things, to YouTube videos. I can do follow-up things with, with related work from other people. There's loads crammed into these. So if you haven't given them a go, and perhaps if you're listening to this um, uh, in the build-up to summer and you want some CPD over the summer holidays, or perhaps you're thinking about your CPD provision for September going forward, all the courses are available now. Uh, check them out, and there are discounts available if you want to sign up your whole department to one course or a group of courses or whatever. So let me just give you that catch url one more time craigbarton.podia p-o-d-i-a.com and there's a link to that in the show notes anyway without further ado let me introduce jonathan hall oh and if you want to play a drinking game whilst you listen to this podcast here's a good one try downing a shot every time mark mccourt gets a mention you'll probably be hammered by the end of the speed dating round anyway i really hope you enjoy this one i know you will and as ever i will see you on the other side So, Johnny, we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Right, I took a bit of thinking about this one and I've come up with uh, my answer of 16, uh, but in base four. <laughs> right. <laughs> because when you're counting in base four to 16, um, and I mean, you can do this along with me, you'll go one, two, three. Then obviously you're not allowed to use the numeral four. So then you're right. 
one zero or it looks like ten, and that means one four, doesn't it? And then um, kids are when you first take this, kids are like, all right, yeah, I'm getting where this is going. So one two three ten, if you like, which is four. Then you'll go uh, one one or eleven, like ten and four and one. Then twelve. 13 and then 20 which is obviously two fours and zero and then they carry on and they go okay so now it's two fours and a one so it looks like 21 two fours and a two two fours and a three and then three fours 30 and then this last one always catches them out and teachers as well it catches them out because then they go okay so let's go to now so 13 so now it's a three and a one it's a three fours and a one uh, three fours and a two three fours and a three and then they all put 40 or four fours and a zero for when they get to 16 uh and like literally the whole class will always do that then i'll say but you're not allowed to use the numeral four are you and they'll go oh so does that mean i have to go to 100 sir i'll say yeah you have to go to four four 16 so write 100 like that and like if you do that task with with, with kids or with teachers as well like you can guarantee that like almost 100 percent of the class will always write four zero instead of one zero zero when you count to 16 so um yeah 16 but in base four is 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 one of my favorite numbers um but you can generalize that as well i always like to generalize in math so basically my favorite number is n but in base root n so if you do it 25 in 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 base five you'll get to 100 when you get to 25 if you do sort of you know you get the idea flipping it johnny i'll tell you what we, we've lost the non-maths audience straight away anyway so that's, <laughs> Sorry that's, about that's that. got rid of that's got rid of them straight off <laughs> that yeah. is, no that is incredible that is incredible i'll tell you what i i don't dabble enough in uh in different bases at all it, and it was um our mutual friend uh, mark mccourt who really started getting me thinking about yeah, base because he's always chatting about changing base number numbers left right and center but that's the first uh base related um uh, favorite number we've had on the show so it's a strong start Johnny. yeah i thought he'd um, add bases yeah so and yeah literally yeah mark mccoy he's, he's got me obsessed with bases and um, i was always quite a fan um, from like a young age when i was playing with programming on like the sort of bbc computers because like you could do sort of um binary monsters and stuff like that when i was about seven or eight year old and then uh, mark reminded me of um multi-base arithmetic when i obviously started going to his cpd session so yeah there we go. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, speed dating question number two, Johnny. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Right, okay, I was put some thought into this one. And then um, at school, um, I genuinely, I can't really remember, like high school sort of level maths, secondary maths, I can't really remember. I do remember occasionally my teacher would probably take me to um, a computer room and I, and I tended to light those lessons with the graphing software. Now, thinking back, that was probably like early versions of autograph because that's mm. the sort of time when I was going out here. When I was in school, um, but I don't really remember much of my um, sort of secondary maths. My teacher, absolutely brilliant. I remember Mrs. Williams, she was like super, super strict. And I just remember I'm learning really, I'm learning loads in these lessons. There was no messing about and I was learning loads. Um, in terms of the actual topics, I can't pinpoint one. Um, I can only sort of pinpoint topics um, when I got to uni and started studying maths. Um, so as a uni student, it was um, definitely number theory. That was one of the, because you study all sorts of crazy things at, at university and a lot of the stuff was just like sort of way over my head. I, like, I, did, I, I could understand enough to sort of scrape through the exams at the end of the semester, but um, number theory is one of those that um, really clicked with me. So I really do like that. Um, and questions such as like, um, if you take the number 200 factorial, um, how many zeros does it have on the end of it? And things, things like that. So, um, and that's kind of spilled over because obviously... Um, sort of things like prime factorization, fundamental theorem of arithmetic, which I'm, uh, so I know you're going to mention later. It's one of my favorite topics to, to teach. So, um, yeah, I'll go with uh, number theory as my uh, favorite topic. 
Nice, fantastic. And uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education, Johnny? Uh, well, um, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, um, professional garden fort builder would probably be... Um... <laughs> that was very... Inf- that was incredible. Just, just tell listeners about that. This is for your, uh, for your little boy, right? Uh, yeah, well, basically, so lockdown started and, and all the sort of the park shut, didn't it? So, um, And he loves going to climbing frames and swings and stuff like that. And um, nursery shut as well, so we were saving a bit of money on nursery fees. So he thought, you know what, um, we can't go to the park, so I'm going to try and bring the park to the garden um <laughs> so basically i had a couple of beers one night and went on to like um, some sort of wood ordering site and then woke up in the morning i've got like a an invoice for like 400 quids worth of like treated timber with no plan <laughs> and like the wife goes nuts at me and i'm like okay right um best start like researching how to build sort of garden climbing frames now so um i i am quite i am obviously massively keen on diy and stuff like that so um yeah, but it turns out when you build a fort, there's loads and loads of mass involved. I was like using trigonometry for real to like calculate sort of um, angles and how long do I need the ladder to be. And like, um, there's a there's a bit of mass involved in this um, hanging a swing as well. I didn't realise. Um, so um, yeah, when you hang a swing, the sort of the the gap of the swing is not parallel to the swing sheet, the uh, the swing seat at the bottom. You actually have to go out a little bit. You have to go out four percent of the perpendicular height. So. Yeah, there's, there's loads of mass involved in building a fort. Uh, but seriously, um, obviously, that's probably not a full-time job, but I do like being <laughs> outside. So, like, landscape landscape gardener, uh, that sort of thing. I, I do love my garden, and I do love being in the outdoors. So um, that would probably be, like, um, a job if I weren't in education. A lot of me, um, a lot of people say to me, oh, surely you'd just be, like, a computer programmer. But um, definitely not. Um, I, I really do like coding, obviously, um, now I've got all my sites and stuff, um, but I really don't like being told what to code, if that makes sense. Um, I like the freedom of like just being open, open up my laptop or something, and then write, um, oh, I fancy making this or I fancy making that. Um, and I really find that enjoyable. It is like a hobby. I don't see it as, um, as work. It's literally just a pastime. I'd rather do that than watch a film, say. Uh, so, yeah, um, I wouldn't be a computer programmer because I only really like to program stuff that um, that's interesting at the time sort of thing, which is why I guess sort of like my mass bot and my sites have always stayed free and not like on commercial with them because then I might have to do things that people tell yes. me to do. If you know that makes sense. Yeah. So there we go. Jeez. Okay. Fascinating, Johnny. And I'll tell you what, before we before we get into the depths of, of your career, um, I just want to ask, just we're recording this for the benefit of listeners at the start of July 2020. Yeah. Um, what, what's kind of lockdown life like for you? And particularly now schools have um, kind of not fully reopened, obviously, but for some year groups and as, as a practicing teacher, um, how, how are you balancing everything, Johnny? What What is your typical week look like? Um, it was really tough at the start. I think, I think for most people that the change... Um, the change was just dramatic at the start but now um myself and my wife we both work at the same school um and we're in a similar situation to you like we've got a, a really I've, I've got like I think my kid's like a year older than yours isn't he so I've got a screaming two and a half year old all the time so <laughs> trying to get any work done is just it, basically impossible like I can I can take him for an hour or so um I can get physically assaulted by him for a couple of hours like I have this morning. <laughs> well, well, sort of like my wife, Becky, gets um, a couple of hours work done and then we might do a little switch or something. Uh, but the hardest thing is when it gets to sort of like bedtime, which is like seven o'clock for us, um, yes. when we put them down and like all you want to do is just collapse on the sofa and just sort of like do nothing. But then like you, you try and catch up on sort of school emails or um, 
whatever, whatever. So it, it's it's tough. Um, it's getting a little bit easier. To, to be fair, a shout out to my school, uh, Leeds City Academy. They've been they've been awesome in terms of um, understanding that. Uh, they've been they've been really they've been really good in like not saying right you have to do like all this ridiculous amount of work or something. It's like literally get done what what you can do. We we appreciate the circumstances you're into, especially with 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 sort of like families with young children. So um. Yeah, I forgot what the original question was. Now, have you answered it? Yet? Well, are you? No, no, that's good. Um, and are you? Are you back in school now? Oh yeah, um, year grade. And what, what's that like, Johnny? Um, weird. Um, so I've been in school. Um, <laughs> every every Wednesday, I've been in for about a month teaching sort of like the key worker and vulnerables. And I've also been starting going in on Mondays as well to teach the uh, the year tens that have started coming back. Uh, and we've been teaching them in the sort of assembly hall. So the acoustics are, are, not, are not great because it's basically a sports hall. Um, so there's about about twenty, had about twenty, all on sort of like, like socially distanced desks, basically like exam exam setup yes. they were in. Um, and I had like we've got a big projector at the front. Um, luckily, um, there's obviously there's no sort of whiteboards to write on. So I've got a projector where I can project stuff. Uh, but luckily we've got visualizers. Every classroom in our room has a visualizer. So we've borrowed one of those and taken it down to the exam hall. So I was doing, um, I did like um, a two-hour session on like the transformations. So I had my tracing paper and everything, doing my transformations under the visualizer. And it worked really well. Um, the hard thing is getting the sort of AFL, because if you're not allowed to go too close to a sort yes. of um, pupil and you're trying to see, right, is that rotation, is that center of rotation right or something, it's really hard because my eyes are like dodgy at the best of times. But if I'm not allowed <laughs> within two meters of a of a pupil yeah it's, it's quite difficult i think that's going to be a challenge going forwards to be fair um any sort of afl and so um i mean i think things like sort of multiple choice questions i think you know a thing or two about those i guess um they're going to be really important going future you're getting teachers really good at um yeah checking when they can't really get that close to pupils work so yeah, and yeah. what's been the how the kids found it? Uh, do you get the sense that in general they're glad to be back in school? What what's their reaction been, Johnny? Um, yeah, I think um, they they're certainly definitely glad to be back in school. Um, the first session I did with them, they were like really really quiet, really really timid. So like this is I guess it's like um it's like when you first start school in year seven for some of them. Like it's like it's a totally new environment. So in terms of like yeah, they're um their normal talkative sort of selves that that was that was gone they were really really quiet and it took quite a lot of sort of like ice breaking with them to get them back to normal within within a week or two they, they'd like they'd never left though to be fair it's just really small groups so like like the vulnerable uh, key worker group there's only about sort of seven in that group and um, so yeah they were really quiet to begin with them but then after a couple of weeks it was just like normal um yeah, and I, so that's one of my sort of reassuring things, I think, for September. Yeah, the first week's going to be weird, but I reckon within a couple of weeks, um, yeah, it's, it might be like almost sort of like nothing sort of happened. Obviously, we're still going to have all these like all that sort of one-way systems, one one metre rules and stuff like that. But um, kids are really adaptable, I've found. And like, um, for, it's really lovely to have them back as well. I was saying, look, I'm not trying to be cheesy here, but it's really, really nice to have you back because I have missed teaching. I do love yes. teaching. I've been doing it for like years and years. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put me through myself through that punishment if I didn't actually enjoy teaching you guys. So, <laughs> so I did say I'm, I'm not just be saying it to be cheesy. I really, really sort of like uh, I'm enjoying teaching you again. And I think we appreciated that. And so yeah, it, it's it's nice, and I think it'll return to normal. Well, fingers crossed, it returns to normal pretty, pretty sharpish come September. 
That's great. Superb, Johnny. Um, all right, let's, let's go for your career then. So where did it all start for you and how did you get to where you are today? Right, I looked this up because I couldn't remember. And I always say <laughs> I've been teaching like, well, it got to like 10 years, then you, you kind of stopped counting. Um, yeah, yeah. So I actually went back and looked at my um, PGCE certificate because, um, I mean, I don't know where the certificate is, but I took this sort of like um, sort of steps to scan it in years ago. So it says PGC in 2004, I started training. Um up at, um, in Leeds, it was because I did my uh, degree at Leeds Uni, then I did my PGC up at um, Leeds Trinity. Um, I was a terrible PGC student though, because I was straight <laughs> out of university, and um, so I was what twenty one at the time, um, and I knew that I really liked maths, and I had actually been tutoring my little brother A level maths as well, so I knew that teaching was probably something that um, um, I, I'm going to quite like. And in fact, before I did that, I also went back to my old school and say, can I just volunteer and do a bit of teaching it was nice to see my old maths teacher there um so I did my PGC in 2004 I apologized to my uh, course tutor and a guy called Stephen I know he's on Twitter so if you all are listening Stephen I apologize for being so awful because I think I was just basically sort of a bit too immature so I didn't really take things in um um, after that, so qualified. Um, hey, I did... on, let's just reverse there, Johnny. What, what, when you say you were bad, what are we talking like misbehaving during the, the sessions and stuff? Or no, it wasn't like throwing things, things and stuff like that. <laughs> I think I was just probably more like sort of, you know, just the annoying stuff that kids do, like checking their phones and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Maybe just like chatting to my mates instead of listening in, in, intently, that sort of stuff. Um, and that's purely just me being an awful student. I've got, I've got no sort of excuses for it, so... Uh, I would like to take this chance to sort of publicly apologise to Stephen. I don't know if he remembers me at all. I mean, he might do, but um, yeah. But like, I enjoyed my PGC. I really did. Um, yeah, the, the 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 couple of schools that they put you in, like sort of like a like inverted comma nice school and a not so nice school. Then you really do sort of um, get a, get a flavour for whether you're going to like teaching. Like, and I've never looked back. Um, I enjoyed my PGC, and, and from then, um, obviously, been teaching ever since. So after that, um. Yeah, first say out PDC, I got a two-year sort of job at a Catholic school in Leeds, Cardinal Heenan in Catholic school. Um, absolutely loved that. Made some really good friends there. I always remember a teacher called Angie. She was a fanta- fantastic maths teacher. Um, and then unfortunately, it was a two. It was a two years. It was always a temporary sort of thing. It was covering a sort of long-term absence. And so after two years there, um, I moved to. It was City of Leeds School at the time. Um, it's now Leeds City Academy, and I've been there for thirteen years now. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and, and I love the place. Um, like, literally, all of my best friends I've met there, um, I've met my wife there as well, so it, it's a big part of my life, that school. Um, and obviously, I, I wouldn't stay there for 13 years if I didn't if I didn't quite like the place. So, uh, Jeez, and what's, what's your role there, Johnny? You... Um, well, it was just a normal teacher, if you like. Um, normal teacher when I started there, I was obviously, like, sort of, I think, yeah, I was two years into my career by then. Um, yeah. Worked my way kind of through the ranks. So the first two or three years, just getting to know how, know how to be a teacher. I think it's only till about sort of like once you're in about year five, then you start sort of sort of grasping the hang of this teaching malarkey. I think. Um, <laughs> I think I came about second in the department, probably something like about five or six years in, and then I uh, kind of well not forced into, but like asked to be head of department for a few years. Uh, mainly because quite a few people left, and that there was not many people left. Um, now. I was all. I think. I think it was all right as a department. It was never really my passion, though. The, the sort of admin side of things, um, that side of teaching was never my passion. Um, I think I'm 
well, I know I am. I'm much more sort of like the, the teaching and learning style of things, mm. um, like the sort of advanced skills teacher. Now, I missed that boat, unfortunately, because that kind of got phased out when I was ready for that. But, um, yeah, I much prefer the teaching and learning side. So um, after a few years of head of department, um, we got a new one in, uh, Marcia, um, who was really like a breath of fresh air, really. And it was kind of like a relief for me just to drop down to normal sort of classroom teaching. Uh, I say normal classroom teaching, like um, lead practitioner role, role. I think that's quite a common role now in schools where basically I, I get to focus on the stuff that I really enjoy, the teaching and learning side. So leading all the sort of departmental CPD, uh, that sort of stuff. And obviously um, uh, last year, yeah, I think it was last year half term uh, was the first time ever I dropped down to three days teaching because it had been like full time teacher for like these 13 years. Last year, um, Mark obviously approached me um and I'm sure we'll talk about him later on. And, and he said, oh, do you want to come work for me at LaSalle? And I'm like, yes, I really do. And I'm like really, really flattered by that honour because obviously I've been to loads of his CPD sessions by then. I'm just like blown away by the quality. And like just the fact that he's asking me was like a, quite humbling. And so it's, but I also, I'm not ready just to go cold turkey, 13 years full-time <laughs> teacher to like full-on sort of just delivering CPD. So uh, I sort of like bargained with my school and said, look, can you let me go down to three days? as lead practitioner, uh, which is now Monday to Wednesday, and Mark kind of worked for you for you two days. And um, they both agreed, Mark agreed, uh, the school agreed, uh, so which is brilliant. And it's like there's there's such perfect synergy between the between the roles because one of the things that people always say on my sort of CPD sessions are it's, it's really nice that you can tell that you've done this recently in the classroom, that sort yes. of stuff. So I, I literally, I, I get to teach Monday to Wednesday. Um, I get a load of stick from both both teams, actually. Like Matt and the... Um, <laughs> The the uh, the teaching staff at my school say, "Oh, you're part time." When I when I when I when I leave on a Wednesday, saying, "Oh, I'll see you next Monday" or something like, I do work Thursday and Friday. <laughs> and then like the team at uh, LaSalle, like Rob Smith says, "Oh, you're part time. We're only working Thursday, Friday." So I get it from both ends. I can't I can't possibly win. <laughs> but the uh, the synergy between the two roles is, is really brilliant. I get to I get to plan and design and teach all these brilliant lessons, and then I get to talk about them Thursday and Fridays. So. I mean, I couldn't really be happy at the moment. It's, it's lovely. Let me just let me just ask you on that, Johnny. So I um, I dabbled with with dropping down. I think I started dropping down maybe a day or a day and a half mm. um, whenever I was doing um, starting up with diagnostic questions and stuff. And I, I enjoyed it too. I enjoyed. I, I definitely saw the benefits that you're talking about there. But I'll tell you the bit that I found really hard was that um, I had to have split classes for the first time. So I had to share classes with with teachers, particularly if it was like year 11s, because year 11s were on every day and I wasn't in every day. And I found that bit so hard and also kind of missing out on what was happening in the department. Mm. I had to kind of catch up when I came in and stuff. Do, do, do you find challenges with it as well as the benefits? Yeah, th- uh, yeah, those challenges they highlighted. Absolutely. Now, um yeah, in terms of the split classes, that is a big one. It is it is kind of an kind of annoying having to share with another teacher. But like the classes that I do share, it's with a really experienced teacher, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. So basically, we we tend to have either four or five lessons a week. So if it's um if it's like a year eleven, five times a week, I'll teach them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, and I'll try and teach them um, like a new topic, say for example, and then Thursday, Friday, rather than moving on to a new topic, um, I'll. Um, I'll, I'll tell this this experienced teacher who's perfectly perfectly capable of of, clam, of of planning sort of like this sort of extension enrichment activities based on that topic. 
he'll teach them that sort of stuff and try and fill any gaps that I've missed Monday to Wednesday. Um, it's not a perfect scenario by all means, because obviously he doesn't know how the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and lessons have gone. I'll have a quick word with him on Wednesday afternoon saying, oh, I've got this far with him with trigonometry or whatever. Uh, they still need to do finding the missing angle or something like that. And he'll try and fill those gaps. But yeah, it, it, it is a bit of sort of extra work, a bit of extra workload. But um, and there's there's no there's no easy fix for that. It's just one of those things. But um, I guess anyone that's part time has those problems. Um, in terms of the missing out, yeah, like um, I mean, I miss out going on the pubs on Friday after, after school. I mean, <laughs> I say that there's absolutely no way I can do that anyway now with it with the young kids. But back in back in the day, yeah, the, you see all the sort of the younger teachers going down to the pub on a Friday, so you miss out on all the end of term stuff as well, like the Christmas shows and stuff like that. That's really hard having Thursday and Fridays off. Um, the CPDs that we deliver though, that's on Monday, so I get so I get I get involved in all that. So that's 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 kind of nice, but yeah, you you do miss a, a lot of the sort of end of term, end of term sort of camaraderie that you you normally get. I, I mean, I love breaking up for for sort of Christmas time and the six weeks holiday, things like sports days as well. Um, yes. If they don't fall on my days, I miss them. And so you you miss some of the sort of um, the extra stuff on teaching, which I took for granted, I guess, for thirteen years. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's kind of it's it's, it's kind of hard that, but um, it, again, it's it's. There's there's no way around it. If if I want if I choose to do this sort of career route, then it's it's gonna it's gonna happen, isn't it? Um, yeah, fantastic. Okay, Johnny. So now we turn our attention to one of my favourite bits of the podcast, and that is where I'm going to ask you to talk about a favourite failure. So it could be anything. It could be your teaching, it could be your professional life. But I'm I'm interested in something that didn't go according to plan, and crucially, what you learned from the experience. Right. Okay. Then. Um, so. Do you remember the uh, Tarsier puzzles? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Yep. Right, I'm, I'm not sure if all the listeners will remember. They're basically sort of like jigsaws, aren't they? So like they cut into triangles and like um, you have the question on one side of the triangle then you have another triangle where the, where the answer is. So that's just a little sort of... Um, and it's worth saying, Johnny, because when you were saying about your PGCE, I think I, I lose track of how many years um, I've been involved in teaching. I think I started my PGCE... I took a year out after uni, so I think I started either 2004, 2005. I think so we're pretty much, nothing. yeah, exactly the same in terms of length. I, 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 think, I think we are. And so it's worth putting a bit of context on this. Maybe for about the first, <laughs> what would it be, kind of five years of our career, if you weren't doing a Tarsia in a lesson, oh, you'd fail, you were doing something yeah. wrong, right? It was, <laughs> yeah, you're not getting an outstanding unless you're whipping out a Tarsia. They were literally all the rage. So yeah, go on. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm intrigued already, Johnny. About well, this to be story. fair, and they are, Tarsias are brilliant if they use effectively. And I mean, I've, to be fair, I've, I remember I've been to some of your training sessions on, on Tarsias and how you use them for sort of misconceptions and stuff like that. Yes. And, and they were all the rage. And if you use them effectively, they are brilliant. Um, I found, um, in general, Tarsis used to be too big. Like those, those massive hexagons with like, I don't know how many pieces, like 30-odd pieces or something, which like kids would never finish in a lesson. Um, I found the smaller ones, those little triangle ones with like sort of like nine pieces or 12 yes. pieces, they were more effective because you could get those done in like 20 minutes and have a good sort of discussion about them. Uh, but um, one of my brainchilds when I was like, I think, yeah, this was literally my first year of teaching, was like pupil-generated Tarsias. Oh, so nice. like, and, and and this is like when I was still teaching things like the dreaded bid mass and stuff like this. So I'd teach a lesson on bid mass, if you like, or order of operations, as I now call it. Um, and I say, right, let's 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 get the kids to sort of pupil generate a tarsi. This is going to be awesome. This. And so I'd get them to take like a sheet of A4 paper, fold it in half, fold it in half, fold it in half again, and they'd unfold it. So they've got like eight squares or eight rectangles. And so right, okay, you've got all your creases. Draw draw your lines in. Um, and like now now you need to make up these order of operation uh, questions 
And I, to be fair, it took about 10 minutes just to get them to fold the paper. So that's 10 minutes of wasted time already. And then they start generating these questions. And I was expecting sort of some sort of really clever sort of order of operation questions, or at least things like, I don't know, two plus seven times nine, the sort of yeah. stuff. But it wasn't. It was just things like 10 plus 10 or like um, th- three times nine, like and, and nothing to do with order of operations in terms of testing that skill. So like 10 minutes to fold the paper, about 20 minutes to come up with all their questions. And they get it wrong as well. So they'd write, they'd write the question on one side and they'd write a question on the other side. So it wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> and you can just imagine how, how, how the lesson went. So when they eventually did think they'd done all the questions, I then had to individually check every single piece of A4 paper yep. to make sure they'd done question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Um, and the, most of the time, nine out of ten times, they'd, they'd done it wrong. So it's go away, start again. Uh, when a kid eventually had done it, the questions were just rubbish, the ones that they'd done. It wasn't testing the skill that I actually wanted them to test it on. And then they had to, then we had to get scissors out, and scissors are just like a nightmare. So they had to cut, on, <laughs> cut them all out, and then they'd, they'd lose the pieces. So then we had to start initial in the backs. And it just sounds like a car crash, and, it, and like it's bringing pain to me just like talking about it now. <laughs> Um, but you quickly learn that that's probably not a good idea to do in the classroom. Um, yeah, pupil-generated tarsiers is like, yeah, don't try what, it. Is, is it's worth digging into this a little bit, Johnny. What, mm. what, 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 what was it that was that was wrong? Because again, you'll you'll have listeners listen to this who will swear by pupil-generated questions, right? And this is something I'm. Oh no, yeah, yeah, torn. oh yeah, yeah, and and I get torn apart on Twitter about this because any time I post something from my variation theory website, I can guarantee, and I could name them, but I won't. There'll be three <laughs> people who who will tweet me back saying. Why are you writing the questions? It's far better to get the kids to write them. So it's not mm. that people generate. I mean, I have issues with people generating questions, and maybe we'll dig into this in a second. But but that's not that's not the main issue with this lesson. Would that be right? Uh, yes. the The main issue was the, the absolute wasted time of making these in the first yeah. time when I could have just printed <laughs> off like a professionally designed tarsier, like like off your website or something, and and just cut it out in seconds. And I know I've got a, a bank of really good, effective questions to use um it was like 20 minutes of faffing to create a suboptimal resource if you like um but going on sort of like the generated questions side thing yeah i i love getting kids to generate questions don't get me wrong yeah um they just weren't at the stage that in the in the learning episode that we call them to actually have the nows to create questions like that um so that's that's where uh, that's where it really went wrong. Um, I do like getting kids to generate their own questions don't get me wrong yeah like the generation yeah, effect is on What's yeah, it's, it's worth just just talking a little bit about this. I've, I've reached that similar conclusion, Johnny, that um, they've got to be at the right stage to get mm. the most out of that activity. And I, and I think there's a, a great advantage of teachers taking a bit of control in the, in the initial stages of a student learning an idea. And I should say, mm. listeners, apologies. If you can hear screaming in the background, yeah. this is just my, <laughs> my little voice. My wife and my little toddler have been kicked out of the house to go to a Sainsbury's. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to be able to kick Isaac out here, but unfortunately he's, he's here to stay today. So he's, he's just going crazy in the background, my poor wife. So apologies, oh, listeners. Uh, there's no torture. It might actually be my wife screaming, actually, <laughs> for all I know. But anyway, back to the uh, back to the, the student-generated questions. Yeah, uh, the mistake I've made in the past, well, I've made two mistakes. I've either not allowed students to create their own questions, and I think that's mm. that's potentially a bad idea because if, if they get it right, it's really good for difference students can be creative they can reveal mm. misconceptions and so on and so forth but the other mistake is i've done it too early before they've they've got to grips with the idea itself whereas 
if we take control as a teacher in the initial structure and sequencing and choice of questions early on, I think we can cover boundary examples. We can allow students to confront misconceptions early on. We can use our experience to, 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 to choose a selection of questions that's going to help students develop this complex idea. Would that be your take, Johnny, or, or have you got a different spin on it? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, like Kids have to be able to sort of do a key process, for example, before they can start thinking deeper about it. Yeah, so with this sort of like Tarsier and order operations, yeah, they were, they were just learning about it. They weren't in any sort of sort of readiness to create these questions themselves. Um, but yeah, when they're ready for it, generating questions is super powerful, like things like ratio questions. And I just because just I popped this on Twitter yesterday, like, okay, d- d- design a ratio question where one person gets a share of £15, for example, and give them a bit of sort of structure as to what you want the answer to be, rather than just generate me a question on ratio or generate me a question on all of our operations or generate me an equation to solve. Generate me an equation to solve where the answer is five and give them a bit more specifics as to what you want this question to look like. So write me a two-step equation where the where the answer is five. Uh, okay, can you write me a two-step equation where the answer is negative five? Can you write me a two-step equation where the where the answer is five point five, and then just that let's put like those increasing sort of constraints on the question, um, in the sort of generation of them. That's what I find useful, rather than just sort yeah. of like free for all. You know, I just make me some questions up, because um, yeah, I think giving the kids some sort of structure and some boundaries and some sort of constraints onto what you want this question to look like, uh, that's that's what I find helpful. But on, on, none of this can happen until they're fluent with the the key process. I remember that was that was the key phrase when I was um, early on in my year. It was they, they called them key key processes. I think from the national strategy, sort of like literally the ability to solve an equation. Here's an equation. Can you solve it? That's just a key process. There's no context to the equation why we've got this equation, but can you just can you just solve it? And they need to, you need to get that first before you can do all the sort of behaving mathematically sort of um, side of things. Yeah, I I agree. And just on that, Johnny, because I, I saw that tweet you put out um, as well about ratio. And th- this leads me to, again, another, I don't know if it's an issue with, with student-generated questions, but it's something that I'd definitely like your take on. And that is one of the advantages of having students all answering the same questions is just from a practical level as a teacher that, you know, it's a single set of answers. So the kids can check with each other. They can check with the answers on the board. You can check as you're going around. But it's a lot harder when the kids are generating their own. Just on a practical level, if you do something like that ratio task or the the solving equations task where the students are creating their own, how do you manage it practically in terms of checking whether students have got things right or not? Yeah, Uh, well, one of the main things is actually set the answer that you want. So all the kids are generating the question um, with an answer of five, if it's an equation. And then, um, okay, swap with your partner. Can you work through that solution and make sure you get an answer of five? So um, I'm thinking back to a year eight lesson I did, uh, sort of about February time, I think it was. And we've just done solving equations with algebra tiles. And the kids had nailed it. Um, well, I say they'd nailed it, hopefully. They were getting the right answers. So I said, oh, okay, okay, class, it's up to you now. You need to generate a question where the answer is five, and then you need to check it with your partner to make sure it's right. Um, There is going to be elements of sort of um, prattling about. It's just just the natural way way it is. If you just give a, like, project 10 questions on the board and just say, right, in silence, work through them, the behaviour is naturally going to be better than if you give kids these sort of generation questions. The way around that is just do it lots and lots and lots until it becomes a, Mm. a normal sort of part of, of question generation i love things like um, number pyramids for that as well um 
So give them the template of the number pyramids normally on the whiteboards for this and set up a number pyramid for your for your partner to solve uh, things like that. But as with anything, as with manipulatives and with, with whiteboards, it's through regular use uh, that the novelty wears off for the kids and behavior kind of improves. Um, I'm, I'm sure like in like, I don't know, 20, 30 years time where everything is just sort of like done on tablets or something, that's just going to be sort of like um, second nature to, to the kids of the future. But like if you think about it in terms of today, if you just chucked everyone a tablet in the class and said, right, we're doing the maths lesson on a tablet today, it'd go to pot. So I think yes. the main thing is just sort of regular regular use and make it a routine until the novelty until until the novelty's worn off yeah i think you're right johnny this is something I, I, i've been thinking about a lot myself recently that like things like the number pyramids or like when i use my venn diagram activities or ssdd or something like that stuff that you can use again and again and again across different topics the more yeah. you use it firstly as you say the more the novelty wears off but also the more the kids get used to that structure of an activity so they can spend more mm. time thinking about the maths behind it than having to figure out well, what do i do here well, well, well this looks a bit weird what's the setup of this and also the better we as teachers can get at delivering those kind of activities because we know the kind of questions to ask because we've asked them lots yeah. before across different topics so i'm a great believer in yeah reg coming back to regular kind of types of activities yeah. structures of activities does that make sense yeah well literally on on that sort of exact point I'd, I'd you probably won't remember this but when mathbot was first getting going i made a, a page um, called mathbot.com forward slash rich templates and it's literally oh, yes yes like it's from years ago now it's probably four years old but like on, on it i'm just looking at it now just loaded the page up. i've got a rhythmic on with three vertices and four four vertices function machines one two three operations number pyramids two three four rows and then your venn diagrams idea which i nicked like venn single venn double venn triple because i absolutely love those venn, di venn diagrams that that triple one where you have like the mean median and mode is it all equal yeah. to five and fill all the five regions and, and yeah and getting them used to it i call it a rich task template okay getting them used to how these templates work because for probability the mean that sort of stuff it's just brilliant those venn diagrams yeah so you, you, you reminded me of that um <laughs> nice one right johnny so um we're, we're gonna we're gonna get a bit deep now this is this yeah. is a new new question i'm asking here but i thought seeing as we've been teaching roughly the same amount of time and i've been in a particularly kind of reflective mood over this this lockdown um i wonder whether we can just talk a little bit about how, how things have changed for you so having taught for 10 plus years we can't remember the exact amount um how, how do you reckon teaching in general has changed over the course of your career well, I'm, I think we've uh, kind of touched on them. Um, I trained in the myths of um, card sorts, group work every lesson, uh, learning styles were a thing. Um, I remember actually um, it, it was good practice to uh, give the kids um, a questionnaire to see what their learning style was. I don't know if you had to go through that. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I was like, why Why am I doing this? Like, thing is though, I, was, I, was, I wasn't totally naive. I could, I could tell what I was doing was, was sort of like, crazy and like not not going to be useful but like I didn't have the authority to question it um I was only like I was fresh out into my NQT year, so like I just went along with it um and like it really resonated I don't, I don't know if you've read uh, Ben Newmark's book on sort of um why teach he's got a section on that like why did we do all sort of crazy things when we we're in NQT and just blindly accept that it was a uh, good practice so um yeah and then as that's kind of sort of like drifted and basically um, I'm not sure if it like it went away, but I just kind of stopped 
stop doing that sort of stuff. Um, I still do the odd card sort, like the standard units card sort. Card sorts are, are absolutely fantastic. A well thought out card sort, brilliant. Um, a group work. I think I've come to the realization that pair work. I can do pair work quite well, like you know, sort of you think share pair, but um, I don't really like getting them in groups of tables. It doesn't really work well for me. That so I think everybody has their own sort of pedagogy and their own sort of skill set in the in a classroom. Um, some people can do group work really well, and I've seen loads of teachers do it, and, I, and I'm and I'm envious of them. I'm jealous of them. What works really well for me is the more sort of traditionalist teaching, me going through a process, kids sat in pairs, and then doing pair work with them. Um, there's definitely been um, a, a, a switch towards more direct traditional methods. I mean, like, I'd never heard of words like atomization until a couple of years ago with, like, um, sort of the likes of Chris Bolton and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and research-driven practice, now, um, that's definitely becoming a thing. Um, like, RSLT at school are fantastic in terms of um, taking things like Rosenshine principles and, and useful useful research sort of stuff, and and, del- and we deliver that on, our, on like, our Monday CPD sessions. Um, so that's been a, a huge change over the last sort of three or four years. Um, but... Um, I'm aware that you need to keep the balance because, um, and like Mark describes it as a pendulum going backwards and forwards. Um, there's there's arguments on Twitter, like, and they just, and I keep out of arguments on Twitter. Like, I've, I've not got anyone blocked, not got anyone muted, but like, I see these arguments and I'm reading them. It's like, why, why are you even arguing about this? Surely, surely the key is to have a balance and, and, to, and, to, and to do what works for you. you. You don't just have to do everything strict, sort of um, direct instruction, and you don't have to do everything sort of like the, well, not discovery learning. What's the one? Um, what's, the, what's the other? Go. Sorry, I couldn't miss that. Uh, oh, so like inquiry based. Yeah, inquiry. That's the word I was looking for. Like the sort of um, the Andrew Blair stuff. Because I, I, I like, I love both aspects of it. Like Andrew Blair stuff, I absolutely love. Uh, Chris Bolton's sort of um, presentations that he'll do on like um, mass comms, those controversial sessions. As <laughs> I can see, they, I mean, he always likes a controversial session. But like, I can see how, yeah, that might work. And and it's about teachers having the freedom to take elements from both. And I, I probably put myself like firmly in the middle. I, I'll do loads of direct instruction, but then I'll also do loads of really interesting sort of behaving mathematically tasks, tasks with that. And I think it's about getting that balance. Don't just go one far down each each of the extremes. Um, so yeah, like... I think, um, I think, go sorry, on. go keep going, Johnny. I was going to say it's sort of like about like a, a roughly about an 80% split, I'd probably say if I was to, if I was to be honest, maybe 70, 80%. So maybe three or four lessons on sort of the more direct sort of route and a couple of lessons on the more sort of inquiry, but they're not like sort of strict sort of one hour, one hour, one hours. It, it might be sort of just, it's just a general ratio of, of what I do. Uh, but but it's always the key processes first uh, for me. It's key process. Can they actually do the maths? And then, hey, look what we can do with this maths. We can do really interesting stuff and we can tie it with other areas of, of, of maths as well. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating, Johnny. You, you hit the nail on the head. What I what I was going to ask uh, just at the end there is for me the sequencing is important. It's I, I hear a lot of it kind of. De- I, I I try not to get involved in the arguments on Twitter as well, and I, I'm a little reluctant to to 
kind of say it's it's just a balance and leave it at that because I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it is a balance, but it's a balance combined with sequencing. I think in the past I've been guilty of just chucking any old interesting task or activity at kids before they were potentially ready for it. Whereas now, if, if we talk about learning episodes or sequencing of different types of instruction, I agree with you that it's get the kids comfortable with the with the key processes and whether we do that mm. using an example problem pair, whatever, whatever technique, then for me, some kind of fluency practice or intelligent practice. And that then sets them up to do the really interesting stuff. And that doesn't mean that the worked example needs to be boring. It doesn't mean the, the, the intelligent mm. practice and the fluency practice needs to be boring but it's that is all building the foundations that then let students become the creative mathematicians that, that we all want them to be so for me it's definitely a balance but i, I think yeah. as you're saying yourself that the sequencing is important in this johnny isn't it yeah absolutely and i'm going to blame you now for this next bit i'm going to say because um <laughs> no it's not in a bad way don't worry it's like you know like the sort of the my turn your turn stuff um yeah like i i obviously i i've done that in the past and, and it has been a relatively recent thing like weirdly for me it just seems like obvious like why not keep the example on the board as, as you get yes. let kids try the other one because i'd always just do an example like and then like rub it off write the question yeah, or click too. onto the next yeah. slide and it's such a simple change and it requires no effort and, and like every teacher should probably do that but um one thing um i was listening to you and i thought okay like let, let's make all these my turn your turn examples let's always make them linked in some sort of way uh, and i do that even when i was first introducing the topic and I'd try and do that. And I thought, oh, this is going to be cool as well. So I can introduce the topic. So it might be like, I don't know, share 30, 30 in the ratio one to two. And then the next question or, or the your turn might be something like, I don't know, share ratio in the two in the ratio two to one, share 30 in the ratio two to one. Um, and just try and make them try and make the links between them right there and then as I'm still teaching the key, the key process. Mm. Does that make sense? So yes. trying to get them to draw links between the between like what's happening so the intelligent side of the question you, you'd call it like sort of like what's what's changing between the questions while at the same time they're, they're literally learning how to share an amount in a ratio um and that's something that I don't do anymore um, and, I, and I know you don't I'm sure I've heard you say you don't do you don't you certainly don't recommend that I was trying to like kill too many birds with one stone it's key it's processes first and the your turn my turn in the, in the first examples are not linked at all it's just literally completely completely different numbers uh, not related at all and it's only once they've got that process down then i'll start looking at maybe intelligent questions or my turn your turns where the questions are linked um because otherwise they're trying to do too much in, in one step you can't learn a key process and and make all these links between questions or or kids were just getting sort of like cognitive over, overload there it's like sir you're asking too much of us i remember i tried to try to do a thing with like a speed distance time lesson where all the answers were coming out to be the same speed or something and like the kids were like sir can we just learn how to do this first before you try and sort of melt his brain sort of thing <laughs> you know what it's, it's i'm really pleased you've brought this up johnny because I, I i've i kind of go back and forth on this but i'll tell you where i'm at at the moment so so first off you i think you're absolutely right a, a mistake i've made is i've dived straight into this the intelligent practice the relationship side of things before kids were comfortable on the key processes and that's why when i talk about a learning episode now sandwiched in between the example problem pair and the intelligent practice is, is fluency practice mm -hmm. this disconnected practice so students can just get comfortable i call it confident and competent of the of the key process but to go back to your specific um thing about the related nature of the your turn i'm, I'm back on board with having a related your turn 
but with a bit of a twist. So this, this is the twist, right? So let, let's take the example of your, your example of, of sharing in a ratio. Mm-hmm. So I will make the vertex, the, the vertex example and the your turn, I'll make them related in some way. Either the amount will remain invariant or one of the parts will remain invariant or the answer will be invariant or the answer will be double the previous answer or mm-hmm. something like that. But what I won't do is make a big deal out of it. So I won't right, specifically yeah. draw students' attention to it. And this serves me two purposes. And I might be completely wrong on this. But for students who are kind of working a bit quicker on this, they've grasped things a bit quicker, it gives them something else to think about. They Mm -hmm. may notice something and it starts that chain of thought about relationships that may set them up for the intelligent practice. But also, if you think, if you're a student who's struggling a little bit with this, then actually struggling with the key process, then actually having some things in the example that's invariant to the one that the teacher's shown, so some things that are the same in the my turn as were in the the worked example, that can be quite powerful that because it means students can kind of track those similarities through their working out. So they can say, oh, look, the amount stayed the same. So where Sir put the amount, that's where I'm going to put the amount in my working. And that part Mm. stayed the same. So that's going to look the same. But actually, that bit's different from Sir's example. So my bit's going to look different. So I find that related nature can offer that extra bit of challenge, but it can also offer that bit of support. But to go back to your point, the, the mistake I've made in the past is I start hammering hard about that relationship why this reflect expect check the kids aren't ready for that at that Mm. stage it's all about the process so i don't know if that makes sense but that that's right at the moment i really like the like what you said basically make them linked but don't bang on about it like if 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 the kid spots it brilliant but like don't don't stress it too much in the early stages until i think so because there's plenty of time for those relationships later on I was gonna say, yeah, on that I like I like when I'm doing sort of like long multiplication, I like to ask questions like um fourteen times forty-eight, and then the your turn will be like twenty-eight times twenty-four. Yes. And like no kids will ever clock that it's exactly the same yes. answer. Um so I do kind of sneak I do sneaky things like that, and then kids are like, Sir, how did you do that? That's just magic. Sort of <laughs> stuff. Um, and that's a nice route into things like prime factors as well. But so yeah, I do sometimes sneak it, but I've, n- I've never thought of that idea of just doing it anyway, making them linked because I guess it's less copy and pasting as well. If you keep the amounts, you're saying you don't have to write completely different numbers as well. So it saves you a bit of time. I'm all for all for being efficient. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try that. I'll get back it's to worth it. dab- it's worth dabbling, particularly if it's a, a like a really multi-step process. Like yeah, I yeah. always do it with calculating an estimate of the mean. If you just hold like a couple of the frequencies the same and a couple of the mm. groups the same, for the kids who are struggling, it really does give them a bit of support because you can say, well, look, if your row looks like mine, we've got the same numbers. This is looking good, but this row's different. So your row's going to look different and so on. Anyway, so it's worth dabbling with. It's worth yeah. dabbling with. Uh, right, Johnny. So um, let's turn our attention to um, one of the biggies I wanted to speak to you about, and that's that's maths bar. And we've already alluded to it a little bit. Now, like I, I've 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 started a couple of campaigns to get. I, I want two people knighted. You're one of them, and Don Stewart uh, is is another one because mm. the, your contributions to to maths education um, in terms of you, your sites have just been ridiculous. Like math, I can't imagine a world where MathSpot doesn't exist now. Wow, so thanks. before we start delving too much into it, um, how did it all start, Johnny? Because and how do you know how to build stuff like this? That's what I've always wondered. Well, I guess I've got my dad to thank for that because he bought me one of those BBC Acorn Electron computers <laughs> when I was like, must have been six or seven. Like, I think he bought him for himself, to be fair. So, oh, look, Johnny, <laughs> I bought you a computer. And then he bought me like a how to, how to program in BBC Basic. And like the actual syntax of the, of the language has not changed in 20, 30 years. So like I learned how to program just as a hobby from a very early age. So uh, thanks to my dad for that. But then how did it all start properly then? Well, 
Um, my username on Twitter, StudyMass, that's nothing to do with MassBot. So I did make a website called studymass.co.uk, which is still there. I've not, I mean, I've not touched it in absolutely years. And it's, um, it's when I first wanted randomly generated questions, because I remember I fired up Excel and I learned how to make random numbers on Excel and then make like a, a randomly generated worksheet on Excel. And said, oh, that's really cool. But I don't really like the clunkiness of having to load up an Excel spreadsheet. It'd be nice just to fire it up. Yes. On the internet. So I learned, um, the very first thing I learned was I literally Googled how to make a web page and I made a completely static sort of like addition problem worksheet. So the, the numbers were always like 13 plus 14 or something equals. And then I'd hard code the answers. And then I'd learn, um, and that was just in pure HTML. Um, and then I'd learn, oh, JavaScript, you can, you, can, you can do the same thing in Excel as you can with JavaScript in terms of sort of making randomly generated numbers. So then the, the worksheet went from a static same questions every time to randomly generated questions. I'm thinking, oh, this is cool, this. And it was literally, I'm just playing around with it as, as a hobby and like, and like sort of road testing it on the students as and when, just to, instead of sort of like, you know, textbook exercise or, or whatever. Because this is like, this is the days before Corbett Maths. So I'm, I'm talking like a long time ago where people can just fire up a Corbett Maths worksheet or something like that. Um, then I learned, okay, it'd be really cool if like these these answers could be stored somewhere and you could keep a record of how kids are doing. So then I went on to sort of like um, the the database end of things, learning how to record, um, how to um, save the kids kids scores. And then I kind of got a bit bored because I've like finished. It's like it's all well and good, like, but I can't really be bothered to do every single topic. And then you always get this sticking point. And whenever you look at sort of randomly generated questions, because there's quite a few now if you look on the sort of internet. Um, there's always those sticking points with sort of like the geometry ones, um, yeah. like the dynamically drawing stuff. Like, um, I mean, the stuff that we're doing with the Sally's is really exciting because now obviously we've got that autograph stuff. So we're like, eventually we're going to be able to make the whole of mass dynamic, which is quite exciting. Um, but then, yeah, so after the study mass, I left that. Then I did, um, I don't know if you've heard of flash mass before. I know Joe Morgan's yes. a fan of the flash mass. So, but then, unfortunately, the whole site got killed when Flash died a few years ago. So, I mean, you have to, like, press a thousand. Are you sure you really want to win this? It's probably going to destroy your computer if you do. I mean, if you do get a Flash Mask, you're safe to say yes. It will still work. But it'll just, like, Chrome will not be happy with you if you try and, if you try and load anything on Flash. So, um, I mean, there was quite a nice few activities on there. Um, and it was re the good thing about Flash was that it's really, really easy to build. You could make, like, a library of buttons or whatever and just keep reusing the same stuff. It's a shame that went, but um, it's just the way it will. Then after Flash Mass, um, I, I remember I had an Easter holiday off. Um, and I thought, you know what? I've got this form, and I'm running out of things to do with them, so I'll make formtimeideas.com, um, which I don't know. Again, I don't know if you've heard about. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, which is nice. And it's, that, that's, a, my, that's my sort of non-mass con contribution. And that's still useful. It's, it, it's, it's, it's literally one of those things where you spend a week making and it's done forever and it's always there and you never have to touch it because it just pulls randomly from a database every time, which is nice. And then we get on and to... Uh, Johnny, can I just get into the mindset of it? I mean, you, you've listed, you know, three or four of these things that, that you've mm. built already. Well, when are, you, when are you doing this? So you mentioned Easter holidays, but are you, are you also, is this is this during the evenings? Oh, is this, this is before weekends? I had a kid, basically. <laughs> Everything stopped now, yeah. I've not put the mass spot in months. <laughs> But as a um, as as a kind of self confessed workaholic myself as well, I know that there's a, there's kind of prices to be paid for this in terms of kind of relationships mm. and stuff like that. Is uh, how was your wife with all this? Well, was she around at this point, or is this is this is this in the single dates? Uh, this was this was in my straight out of uni sort of um, 
single days. Uh, well, not say only because I've obviously been a trained teacher now, but like for my first sort of three, four, five years of teaching, I was just just a classroom teacher, single, lived on my own in a sort of like student house. Then, well, but yeah, because I, I like rented houses as you do as a student. Then bought a house when, once I became a teacher. I bought a house. Um, in studentville still so i was still trying i was trying to live the life as a student while also being a full-time <laughs> teacher quickly realized that's not going to work at all uh, so basically i had all the evenings to myself i couldn't go out and do what do what students do um so you know i've got my laptop and I, I really enjoy this it is it is genuinely a hobby so um that's that's how i had the time to do it and then obviously as you get older you get more and more commitments so sort of like time becomes precious but um, i do find i do th- Think of myself as, um, well, I'm not quite sure. I'm either really, really lazy or really, really efficient. I've not decided which of the two I am, or it might be a combination of the two because I, I, I make all these tools literally to make my life to make my life easier. Like the things like formtimeideas.com, I made it because it's just one click and then you've, you've just saved yourself half an hour of prep because you don't have to prep yes. anything. So it's like, it's a combination of it being, I don't want to have to do that prep. If I put the effort in now, if, if I put the time in now, it'll pay dividends in the future, that sort of thing, which is where all my kind of ideas sort of stem from. It's basically time-saving stuff. Um, there's an interesting That's story awesome. as to why MathSpot um, actually um, is, came to be, um, which, I'll, which I'll tell you about now. So, um, yeah, after you've those te- three... you teased us there. That's a big setup. Like well, it's just like, um, because, yeah. So MathSpot, it was just a generator, um, but then... I told you like how I was head of department and then mm. I suddenly wasn't head of department. And the, the reason behind that was basically we had, um, we had a new sort of like director of maths coming. Um, and he, he didn't really know much about maths teaching. Um, but one of the, but like, obviously he was my boss. So I'm like, Oh God. Right. And then one of the things that he brought in and it just like, it's Oh God. Right. Every single lesson has to have a one, two star, three star set of questions. Right. And I mean, we're probably talking about six or seven years ago now. So before MassBot sort of like really got going, it's like, okay, there's absolutely no way I can be bothered to go home at night and write one star, two star, three star questions for every single lesson that I'm going to teach the next day. It's yeah. just not happening. Um, so I thought, you know what? I've got all these randomly generated questions already. I'm just going to change the format of them. And say, oh, let's let's just put them into three columns, and for each of the columns as you work through, let's just make the numbers bigger or more annoying or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's horrendous teaching looking back at it. Um, well, like it, it got him off my case. He thought it was absolutely amazing, sort of. Thing. I wondered how this guy's got this job, Johnny. So he, he doesn't know much about maths teaching, and then his oh, first man. initiative is these one, two, and three. He's not still knocking around at the school, is he? Yeah, I couldn't possibly. No, he's, he's certainly not in our school anymore. Thank God for that. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a job probably. If I, I was talking about my. Uh, I was talking about my SLT. You know, no, no, I wouldn't have a job. No, thankfully, <laughs> fine, fine. thankfully he's moved on. But to be fair, like he made he made our lives hell in the maths department. But like necessity is the mother of invention. That's a phrase, isn't yes. it? So yeah, I made it, it like. And to be fair, I didn't really use it that much in the classroom. I'd just like if he'd if he'd come in on like one of his weekly learning walks, I'd just fire it up. He'd put a big smile on his face, and then he'd, he'd just walk <laughs> off within five minutes. And I quickly get quickly get back to the actual real sort of teaching of the lesson. Now that's not to say because to be fair, that one star, two star, three star differentiated question things on MathSpot is 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 really useful, and then and a lot of people use it. In fact, it's probably the most used page on the site, um, and it's really useful for those things that you said, um, sort of like just the fluency, getting them confident yes. with it. It is. It's got its place, 
But you don't want to just do that lesson after lesson after lesson. Yeah. It's got its place in a learning episode. And there's there's millions of alternatives for that as well, like loading up one of the Corbett sort of textbook questions or, or, or any, any there's loads of online stuff, anything that like sort of just just test fluency. But yeah, that's that's where it started. And that was like the very first page on it, the one star, two star, three star difficulty. So uh, in a weird way, I've got him to thank you for it. So um, and then because it's like I don't know if uh, I don't know if this has ever been done, but if you if you were to kind of plot the different kind of parts of MathSpot and when they when they came about, like I'm I'm picturing exponential growth here, Johnny. It seems every time I go on there, there's there's a new aspect to it. It's it's just as have you got a sense of how many different kind of parts of MathSpot there are now? Um, yeah, so it all started with the sort of um, the generating questions, and to be fair, they're still like the the most used sort of pages on the site uh, by by miles like um if i just compare it to like some of the manipulative stuff like um i think the differentiated questions was uh, somewhere in in the region of sort of like uh, 30 40,000 views a month or something for those uh, but like the manipulatives um are like that for a year or something yes. so uh, I think I think I finally breached. I mean, this is nothing compared to some other sites, but I think I finally breached like the sort of like five million page views in a year, which was kind of nice last that's year. That's big. Um, yeah, that's very good. Yeah, and it, and it is kind of like it's not it's it's not doubling every year, but probably like growing by fifty percent every year. Um, lockdown's been interesting in terms of uh, usages. That first Monday when all the schools. Uh, was shut. I think everybody's sort of like online platforms kind of like exploded pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I should mention uh, Mark might sack me if I don't, that Complete Mass was absolutely fine during this. It, it, did, it didn't slow down at all, but I let loads of people like, oh god, got to upgrade my servers and stuff like that. It, it has kind of like gone back more to normal now. More, well, it's, I guess it's like the end of term now, so it has sort of plateaued to end, end of term. Um, I did do a few checks for you though um, um, on the manipulatives. Last year, sorry, no, the year before last, 18,000 people use my Algebra Tiles resources. Okay. And that's kind of nice because that's 18,000 people that didn't use Algebra Tiles before. Uh, yes. And this year it's gone up to 27,000. Nice. So I don't know what it's going to be uh, next year. And obviously with Algebra Tiles, they go hand in hand with like the Dean's Base 10 blocks. And they're used a lot more, I'm guessing, because it's primary focus maybe. So they were two years ago, they were 65K and now they're up to 88, 88K. Um, so they are. It is nice to see that upward trend on on manipulatives, because um, because I know what you, one of the questions you asked, and I'll skip forward a couple of questions is what page do you wish people use most? My passion is obviously the manipulatives, and I wish they were the most used page on the site. But it's it's a fraction. Like the algebra tiles at twenty seven k is like less than one percent of all the page views of, of the of the site. So. Uh, it's interesting stuff. The the randomly generated questions are still by far and away the most used pages on the site. It, it, it is interesting. And it's, it's probably no, it's probably no massive surprise that, right? Because you can just bang them up straight yeah. away and they are most kind of, they look like a textbook, but it's just, it's there yeah. for you. You can change the questions. The answers appear. It's, it's familiar to teachers. They're safe whereas, to use, aren't they basically? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it, Johnny. Whereas once we start to get into manipulatives, they require a bit of thinking about. Mm -hmm. They're not, it's not just something you can project up. The kids can crack on with, and then you can just, you know, bang the answers up and so on. But mm -hmm. I tell you what, what interests me, Johnny, like, I, again, I, I, I could have got this completely wrong, but the manipulatives and the, all the visuals, they're, they're, they're a relatively new thing on, 
on on Mathspot. As you say, it certainly wasn't the first thing that you built. Mm-hmm. Were you always were you always interested in them, or has, has this become something that's changed in your teaching that you've become more interested in using manipulatives, both offline, just kind of physical stuff, and also online? Um, oh, it's 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 relatively new, sort of. Um... When I dropped down from head of department and Marcia took over, she she spotted this sort of um, CPD that the Sal were offering, and um, the deal with the Sal at the time was if you give up your school, a room in your school, uh, Mark will come and deliver the CPD session free for you and two of your colleagues, and, and that's how like sort of. Um, LaSalle didn't have to pay for sort of like the hostings of the room. So yes. it's, it's like a win-win situation. We'll come and deliver awesome CPD at your school and invite other teachers from nearby. And, and if so long as you hosted and get two free places. So Marcia saw this opportunity and, and, and Mark came to our school loads and loads of times and like just absolutely sort of like blew my brain with the, with these manipulatives. I meant, I remember I went to a full day of um, sort of the course was manipulatives, just the title was manipulatives. And Mark came with like a suitcase of geo boards, algebra tiles, fuse and air and everything. And like, it was, it was the greatest day of CPD I have ever been on. Um, and I instantly went home and just started making these manipulatives. I, I remember it was a geo board that I first made. Um, I, I DM'd, I think I DM'd Mark and, uh, and another girl called Emma who was on the course and said, right, that was amazing. I'm going to go make a geo board now. And for the next sort of like two evenings, I did nothing but but do that. And uh, I think that was one of the very first early manipulatives. Then once you've made one, quite a lot of the code is sort of like copy and paste. If you can make a counter, you can make a cues and air rod. The code is literally change it from drawing a circle to change it into drawing a rectangle, that sort of stuff. And then um, over time, people, people say on Twitter, oh, John, it'd be really cool if like um, you could zero pair up the algebra tiles or, or things like that. And so all the suggestions I get are either from me using them in the classroom thinking, oh, it'd be really cool if you could do that or from other people using them, which is, which is really nice. And I was saying, oh, Johnny, can you do this? Can you do that? Um, so I just want to make it as, as useful as possible. And that's, I guess that's the benefits of, the, of it being free as well and uh, easily accessible is that people do use it um, because um, I guess if it was behind a paywall or something, then you're not going to get, you're not going to get that instant feedback because people have to sign up for it and stuff. And uh yeah, that that sort of thing, and I um, can't remember what the question was. Now I've answered it. Yeah, you've you've done it. Well, we're going to go deep into into visuals and stuff, and and online versus offline in a second. But but just before we move on from kind of MathSpot in general, just on that, Johnny, um, have you have you ever been tempted to to introduce like a subscription feature or? any kind of because one of its strengths for for me as a user is the fact i don't Mm. even i don't even need to register or anything like that let alone hand over any cash it's just i can just get on straight away and same with kids i can just say go to that and you're on it Mm. straight away but the amount of hours you've put in and stuff the has there been a temptation to to ever and make some kind of business out of it um yes um i won't i won't lie and say i mean there are sort of like the google ads which does help help pay for it and yes there is a temptation but like money's not sort of everything i mean it's nice i like i wish i could pay off my mortgage and stuff like that and i probably could if i just did a bit of sort of like subscription or something for a year or two but for me it's um it's for me it's just it while i'm a classroom teacher uh and whenever i'm a classroom teacher yeah I, I, I want to be able to get on stuff as fast as possible and i don't have to log on and stuff like that so I have said, yeah, um, certainly while ever I'm teaching in a classroom, there's no way I'm going to start charging for it. Um, 
I would like to, if possible, I don't know, maybe turn it into a business using other routes, for example. Like, for example, I mean, like this role that I'm doing with LaSalle in terms of um, CPD, um, I could maybe do some sort of offering CPD on, on the MassBot side of things, mm. do that sort of thing, rather than slapping a subscription on. Because my, my dream is that every single person every single school in the sort of country like knows about it and uses it and then and they know how to use these manipulatives because i really do believe that if everybody in the like for example was was well versed in how to use algebra tiles to solve equations and then they knew they could just click on MassBot to use it i think that would make a huge difference to sort of mass education so that's the dream um so i don't have any plans um in the near future at all or even in the long future i guess to slap any sort of subscription on it so um it's not it's not in the, the only way that would happen is if like i sort of like lost my job after this interview or something and then um <laughs> like i needed to pay the pay the mortgage basically that's the only way it's going to happen I there's would, still uh... time john there's still <laughs> yeah. time. hopefully i've not said anything too controversial yet so <laughs> <laughs> that's great no that's and just from a selfish perspective again it's it's fantastic to have it free but also somebody who works in kind of education software myself i know that there's there's, there's challenges both in terms of the time you put in and needing to make ends meet and stuff it's a, it's a tricky balance but it's, it's mm. superb stuff johnny and um, right well let, let's talk about teaching visually then because this is I, i've been very vocal about this this is a big weakness in in my teaching um i'm gonna be i'm gonna i can't say it as blunt as this right and this is gonna get me crucified but i'm just gonna say it i've never used an algebra tile once <laughs> I've, I've been to a couple of cpd sessions with them and I've, I've just not felt confident enough to go back and use them. Mm-hmm. I would have, and until I attended the virtual maths conf the other week and watched your session, I would never in a million years have thought to use a manipulative um, to do things like prime factorization. I, I would, would not have even have entered my head. So let, let's start digging into this, Johnny, because I, I need to be, I need to be converted here. And I think that there'll be quite a few other teachers that are perhaps in a similar position to me. So, so first up, I want, I want, I want if you can give us an example of when using manipulatives or visual aids has really enhanced your teaching so something that you used to do one way and now you do completely differently okay well i've got about two or three of these like you've mentioned the prime factor tiles from the mass comm session so I'll, i'll not like talk about that too much but that has been a recent game changer for me prime factor tiles um mark mentioned to me about a year and a half ago now so have you ever seen these before, John? I'm like, no, but they're, they're going to take me about 20 minutes to make on MassBot. Um, <laughs> that's all, because it's literally a copy and paste job. And they have been an absolute game changer. Now, if you're not seeing the, the MassCom session, you, 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 you can go watch it. Um, there's no point, I guess, in me like going through the whole sort of it, the session like now with you guys, because you, you lose the impact if it's just a sort of an audio sort of thing but um one of the other things and I'll, is... I'll put i'll put a link to that johnny in in the show notes but just yeah. just talk it's worth talking a little bit on on these prime factor tiles because again they, they're just they are literally what they sound like right it's just like <laughs> a, a square two a square three a square five yeah and like but then you see them in action and the power it's just it's ridiculous isn't it just the ability to move them around like just like you, when you've got that prime factorization, like in the past, I'd, I'd 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 write things like two times three times five squared or something. But then, if you want to show that how two times three times five squared's got that factor of say seventy five in there, how do you show that really easy? Uh, but with prime factor tiles, you can just take the three, the five, and the five to the side, and you're left with the two. And you can and you can it's just the ability to move things around without having to rub it out and rewrite it. It's just it's, it's a very simple idea. Um, and it's something that I'd never thought of before, but like it's been an absolute game changer for me. Like it's relatively new for me. I've only been doing it in the last year and a half these prime factor tiles, but um, 
if you've never tried them before, just just give it a shot. And the fact that all the primes are, co- are color coded different colors as well, it makes AFL absolutely fantastic because you can just literally look at each other's desk and you can see if they've got the right colors. If everyone's colors match, you don't even be you don't even need to be able to see the numeral on the tile. You, you, can, you can check for that sort of thing. And the idea of bringing things in and bringing things out of the prime factorization, that sequence where I go from like 300 to 600 and down to 150 and, you, and just bringing the tiles in and out as, as and when needed. Yeah, it's, it's been an absolute game changer for me, that one. Um, yeah, and again, I'm, I'm going to recommend people watch the, the full session. And as I say, I'll put a link to it. It was absolutely amazing. But there, there was two things that really stood out to me, Johnny. The first was, so I, I have a similar sequence of questions on, on prime factorization on, on my variation theory website that I use a lot with the related numbers, uh, like you say, going from 300 to 600 to 150 and so on and so forth. Um, but, and I've used it with quite a few classes now with, with lots of groups of teachers. But I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll never use it in the same way again because... To, to back that up with the visualization mm. to show that 300 can be expressed as a product of prime factors like this and 150 or whatever it is can be ex- expressed like this. And what do you notice? Well, the two's missing. Well, why is that? And so on. it just, it makes it visual. It brings it to life. It brings a number-based topic to life in a visual way. So that, that was just mm. incredibly powerful to me to back up something I already do and enhance it. But then also... The, the thing that really struck me, and I wonder whether this is true about some of the other examples you're going to give, the fact that they just allow you to go so much deeper, you can go, you can get so much more out of a concept than just kind of following a normal procedure because you've got this, this, this visual way of representing it. So when, whenever you're linking together, you know, highest common factor, lowest common multiple, whenever you're asking some of the amazing questions you did about the um, number of unique factors and all this kind of stuff, it's questions that would be like extension questions, which would be incre- be inaccessible for many students. They're just a natural follow-on to what they've been doing because they can they can see things in this visual way. So I wonder if that's true, Johnny, about some of the other examples you're going to give, that it allows you to go deeper into concepts. Is that something you've found? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it's giving, it's about giving kids that sort of visual anchor as well. And uh, I guess mm. it's like got s- sort of like, so like i mean dual coding is a big thing as well like i'd previously just do things in the abstract but if you've got this visual image or this sort of physical manipulative which which you do and quite often i'll do it side by side with uh, with each other so like i'll be writing down the abstract but you've got this sort of visual physical image um, or manipulative that you can actually manipulate side by side with the two mm. things and it's just making the link between the image and the and the abstract um it's it, I've found it super powerful because if you've only got the abstract to fall back on and kids don't get that, then then they're stuffed. Uh, and it's like when when you like trying to recap a topic like in a few weeks' time, if kids have got that mental anchor of what they actually did with the tiles, I found that they're much more likely to remember. Oh, I, I remember what I did with those tiles there, rather than just remembering a piece of abstract maths on the on the board. So yeah, um, another example then is um, I mean I'll go back to algebra tiles like. Solving equations with with algebra tiles. Um, if you've not done it before, you, you need to give it a try. Like uh, I, I take your point on board. Um, you've never used an algebra tile uh, in your life before, and yet it, it, you do need. It's it's kind of like I guess a specialist manipulative. You do need proper CPD on it before you, or at least you need to watch a few of the videos that you can see on the um, the internet, or come to some of the last CPD sessions as well. I should probably mention that. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, 
like I'd, I'd teach them this process with with the, um, the with the algebra tiles, and and kids would get it right, and then we then we'd bridge to the abstract as well. So now we're doing the the algebra tiles alongside alongside the abstract, and then eventually start fading out the tiles. And kids will get to a point where they'll they'll say to you, "Sir, I get this now. I don't need the tiles anymore." And I'm like, "That's brilliant. Put the tiles away then, because the whole point of a manipulative is is to get kids understanding a concept." Um, I mean, they are relatively straightforward to draw um, in the exam because I say, okay, you can't take these tiles into the exam, but if you still need them, look how easy it is to draw these algebra tiles to, to solve this equation or to sort of factorize this expression or expand this quadratics. But then the really beautiful thing um, when, I was do, when I was doing this series on algebra tiles is that we'd, we'd eventually move kind of like almost so every kid was just working in the abstract doing your sort of like fluency, getting competent at it. Uh, and then a, a kid just says, right, sir, I've got this answer to this question, but I'm not sure if it's right. Can I just go back and get the tiles? And like, I have the tiles just in like one of those pull out drawers at the back of the room. So like, of course you can. So he just toddled off to the end of the room, got the algebra tiles out, checked it himself. Said, oh yeah, I got the same answer with the tiles as well. I was like, that's, that's brilliant. That's where you want kids to, to be at. So it's, um, that was a lovely uh, sort of lesson, and I remember, I'm always going to remember that one because it, you could just see that like it, it totally made sense of this concept. And like, I can't guarantee that it had never got there if it had just done them the abstract. Um, would it have been more efficient? Would it have been faster? Would it have taken him longer? Would he have never got there? You, you can't tell, and that's the thing with a, uh, that's the thing with, with teaching. You don't know. There's an opportunity cost for everything. If I spend two lessons doing algebra tiles with 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 a, with a class. That's two lessons I could have spent doing something else. So um, there are obviously opportunity costs that you have to weigh. In fact, but like from my experience, um, they 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 make a huge difference to the level of understanding and the retention as well. Um, and also, you have the benefits with algebra tiles that things like negative numbers um, with equations, like it's it's no harder to solve like your classic sort of two x plus six equals I don't know three x plus four, where everything's nice and positive. It's no harder to solve that one than it is something like minus five x minus seven equals negative two x plus six. It, it, it's it's no harder to solve that equation with algebra tiles because it's just a process. And like basically, the only difference is you'll have a red side of the tile rather than a green side of the tile, or a positive rather than a negative. And so long as kids are okay with the idea of zero pairs, which is something that we nail early on in um, year seven. Um, like our first couple of weeks in year seven is like, okay, can can these year sevens do directed number? And we teach them properly using sort of this idea of additive inverses and the, well, we used two color counters or, or just the algebra tile squares. Um, so yeah, they've they've made a huge difference for me. Uh, directed number solving equations are just two of the, two really big ones. Um, then thinking about um, another case as well. Um, like I've had some year 10 and year 11 groups this year, um, sort of like the, the lower attaining end of groups. And I remember when lockdown was first starting um, and the sort of attendance started dropping off. I remember like on, on the first week, you'd be like 100 percent. And then by Tuesday, you'd drop down to 80, then 60. By the Friday, like attendance had dropped to like sort of like 20, 30 percent. And I had this class and I just had two kids in it. And it was a sort of low attaining year 10 class. And like I was doing just addition with him. And they'd never understood that column method of addition. They'd never, they'd never quite cracked it. Um, so, I, so I busted out the uh, the cues and air rods, and, I, and it was a question along the lines of, say, uh, I don't know, fourteen plus seventeen 
plus 16, plus 13 I gave them, something like that. So you've got your 14 and your 16 and your 17 and your 13, which you just number bond to 20, uh, sorry, number bond to 30 and had it done. But I got him to build these numbers out of Q's and air rods. So the 14, he made it out of a 10 and a 4. The 17 was a 10 and a 7 and so on. Then he says, right, how, you, how do you think you're going to add those together? Well, it's easy, sir. I'm just going to bunch all the 10s together and then I'll deal with the, the 4, 7 and the 6 and 3. Oh, look, and the 7 and the 3 give me a 10 and the 6 and 4 give me a 10. I can exchange those for two 10s. I thought, yeah, what you're describing is exactly the column method for addition. Oh, so that's why I do all that carrying forward and stuff like that. And like you could see little light bulbs going on in his head. It's yes. like it's finally making sense for him now. Um, and I mean, he should have seen all that stuff in primary school, but like it's like that conveyor belt um, sort of curriculum. If, if you miss it early on, the conveyor belt's not waiting for you, so you, you're stuffed. And that's it. Your journey's over. So, um, yeah, that's it, just it, a few examples I've used them. It, it's fascinating, this, Johnny. So I... I um... I interviewed Bernie Westercott a couple of couple of years ago, and he blew my mind with with this kind. Oh of yeah, stuff. I love that he, session, the video yeah, one. Yeah, and it, it's it, it's one of my all time faves. And he made the point that that you've made there that a, a lot of this, particularly the algebra and the directed number stuff, rests on this notion of understanding zero pairs, and you've got mm. to kind of hammer the basics of this and spend a lot of time on that, and then you kind of reap the rewards long term because then when you come to solving equations and so on and yeah, simplifying terms, expressions, if you've nailed yeah, if you nailed zero pairs, then everything else just oh, remember when we did zero pairs? Oh yeah, we're doing it again. Oh, we're doing it again. It's, yeah, it keeps building on itself. It's nice. Sorry. But you've got, no, no, you, you, you're right. But you've got the problem, of course, that, again, if you've got a scheme of work where you've only got like a, a certain amount of time to teach whatever it is, negative numbers in year seven, and you, you've got to, it, it takes, a, it's a big shout for a teacher to say, no, actually, I'm going to spend a lesson or two lessons on this one tiny thing that seems mm. tiny anyway, this, this notion of zero pairs, which probably isn't even mentioned in terms of the kind of objectives for this particular yeah. topic, mm. but knowing, looking forward to the kind of rewards that you're going to get from it. It's a big shout for a teacher to make, isn't it? And, and also it requires that knowledge of knowing what's coming next and what are the important things to spend time on in terms of this 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 visualization it's 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 challenging isn't it johnny it is challenging but it's it's having that conviction and 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 teaching models that you know are going to last rather than like mm. the dreaded oh two negatives make a positive now let's <laughs> let's just because like that's one of my first questions i asked me year seven so so i'll put questions on the board like okay what's what's minus four plus minus six and you can guarantee that like some of the class will say positive 10 because two negatives yeah. make a positive. I mean, that's just standard, isn't it? So it's all right, okay, let's let's just forget everything we've learned about sort of um directed number and let's go back to the basics with this idea of zero pairs. And to be fair to primary schools, um it's getting it's getting much, much better, I've found, in terms of like their their um their directed number, but it's still not where we want them to be at. Like the dream is obviously they come to to secondary being absolutely fine with directed numbers. Um I mean, it's not quite the case, but it's certainly getting better. I don't, I don't want to dis primary teachers in any sort, yes. any sort of way. But like, if they've not seen zero pairs before, then um, yeah, I will spend a week, two weeks, if I need to. Right, this we're going to learn these sort of field axioms, if you like. We're going to, we're going to learn this idea of additive inverses. We're not going to call them additive inverses. This is the technical name for them. We're going to call them zero pairs. And the reason I'm going to teach you this is because it's going to be really useful throughout the whole of mass. As soon as we start come, like collecting like terms and you have those tricky ones like, you know, like your 2x uh, minus 2y minus 3x plus 4ys and collect all those, it's okay because we can just, we can rewrite those. We, we don't need to use the subtraction sign. The, the subtraction sign is shorthand for adding the inverse or adding the zero pair, if you like, that sort of thing. Um, 
And it's just about, yeah, making sure they've got that concept nailed and then building on it as, as you go through it. Like the year eight, like when we got to the solving equations, oh, this is exactly what we did with the yellow counters, isn't it? Yeah, it is literally exactly the same. The only difference is we're extending it now to X's and negative X's uh, instead of just ones and negative ones. So I think for me, it's, it's all about teaching a model, teaching, teaching a really good model. And a really good model is one that's effective and one that, one that lasts and, and builds one and never breaks as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'll tell you what, Johnny, I'm, I'm, I'm almost convinced here. And, this, this, and we're going to get to the sticking point now because I've been almost convinced many, many times here. But here's the sticking point. So I'm I'm interested how you balance this, this each kid having the physical manipulative, whether it's mm-hmm. the prime factor tiles, whether it's the algebra tiles, or whether it's these double-sided counters mm-hmm. versus projecting them up from math spot on the board. So, so how would this, how would this play out in a lesson? Do, do the kids, are the kids kind of playing along with you as you're modeling it using math spot or are you under a visualizer? What, what have you found the best way to balance the physical versus the virtual? Um, depends on what you're doing. Um, is the, is the answer. My go-to is a visualizer and the physical manipulatives. Um, cause I find that more powerful because even though the virtual ones are pretty much the same as what they're using, they're not the same as the ones they're using. It's like, um, if I'm writing on the whiteboard a question, um, I'd, I'd much prefer to use my visualizer and, and write on a piece of paper. Now the visualizer has been the biggest sort of game changer for me in the last three or four years. So my go-to is to do it under the visualizer and model it, model it that way. Uh, and the kids have the physical versions with them as well. So that is my um, my ideal scenario. But quite often, like you, you might have moved rooms because I don't have the luxury of teaching in the same room every time. So you might not have the physical ones with you, which is why one of the reasons um, MathSpot exists because sometimes you just want to just bring up a quick a quick sort of. Um, recap of what you've done for example if you if you've if you kind of been moving away from algebra tiles for a bit and kids are getting comfortable with the abstract um you might just want to for a quick sort of like introduction activity oh remember that time we used the tiles now we're not going to go around and hand out the whole class set of tiles i'm just going to quickly fire up the virtual version yes or for example if you're uh, planning a lesson and you want like a, a real perfect image um then just quickly fire up MassBot create the image and snipping tool. Like I can't, I've lost count of the amount of times I've used snipping tool just to literally quickly chuck some up on mass spot, create a snip, chuck it into your lesson. So that sort of idea. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's, I never wanted to replace the physical manipulatives because uh, I, I remember I got quite a bit of stick on Twitter from, from people like, why are you making all these virtual ones? They're never <laughs> going to be as good as the real thing. And like, I, my response was I, I never wanted to replace them at all. I really like physical manipulatives. This is why I'm spending hours of my life creating these things. Um, then I don't, I don't want to replace them. I want to enhance them. So things like quick demonstrations, recapping stuff, um, uh, perfect pixel perfect diagrams that you might want. Or if, if you move room and you, you physically don't have the, the manipulatives to hand, then what, what alternative you got? Um, so it's that sort of idea. It's an idea of they go hand in hand with, with the physical ones rather than... Um, rather than to replace them. Um, I, I tell you what I found interesting as well, Johnny, you said in this, in this maths comp, the virtual maths comp thing on prime factors that you, you weren't buying these tiles. You were just printing them out from math yeah. spot, right? Just kind of generating a load of them. So if we've got kind of a cash strapped teacher listening to this, mm-hmm. um, is it possible to, to make all these yourself or, or are there some things that you would recommend kind of splashing a bit of cash on? Um, well, I always, 
I would definitely, if I was to buy just a couple of manipulatives, I would buy a set of algebra tiles because with that you get your inbuilt sort of double-sided counters. Now, you can make your own algebra tiles, but you've got to be careful because the length of the X and the unit tile, if, if, that, if the unit fits exactly along the length of the X, you've basically just made Dean's blocks in that particular base. Say if the units fits five 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 exactly five units fit along the x tile you basically just made dean's blocks in base five you need you need to have that special knowledge to okay i need it to be sort of like five and a bit and i need it to not fit exactly because yeah, that's the right. whole point about algebra tiles. So you need you need some sort of like specialist knowledge to make them but then the other argument is if, if you're making them from scratch and you're like if you're a qualified teacher and you spend sort of like i don't know three hours making this mm. making this set of algebra tiles um, what's your hour, what's your hourly weight? Uh, what's your hour hourly rate as a teacher? And because you just multiply it by three if you spent three hours making them, and that's a lot of money um, yes. you've spent making these algebra tiles when you could have been doing lesson prep or CPD or something. So I don't I, I don't know. Like the prime factor tiles. Um, in fact, up until yesterday, I didn't even know you could buy those. I had an email yesterday from a guy saying, "Have you seen that I actually sell these prime factor tiles?" <laughs> now, I've not responded to the email yet. Um, That'll be interesting. But, but um, yeah, so I've just literally <laughs> just been hammering them out, um, just that using the arrow keys on MassBot and just printing to screen. Um, I'm lucky that Marcia, when she came in, uh, she was just as sort of like amazed by um, all these manipulative trainings that, um, that that Mark gave us. Um, he was like, okay, Johnny, here's like five or 600 quid or something. Let's just buy all these manipulatives. Now, that's not enough to kit out the whole department, but like we've certainly got a, a department set of algebra tiles, department set of cues in air. We've got the double-sided counts as cheap as chips, so everyone's got loads of those. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, if you can afford it, just buy them. But yeah, if, if you really want to, you could, you could you could set them all up on mass button, press print screen if you wanted to. But um, it's entirely up to <laughs> and you. I, and I guess it goes back to what we were saying before that if you if because another objection that, that I've certainly had in my head or a concern is probably a better phrase is is just the behavior and the time spent kind of oh, yeah. handing these things out and then the mm -hmm. bits are going missing, the kids are messing around and so on. But I guess it goes back to your point early on that if this is just a normal part of math lessons, kids yeah. get used to it, right? Yeah, regular, less, less... regular use promotes normality, really. So just like mini white balls, they were all the rage and kids are drawing inappropriate things on them until they get used to them. Um, it's the same with like my my class don't bat an eyelid now when I get the algebra tiles out. Um, the the two color counters because they're so tinkly. I mean they do quite annoy me when I say put the counters down, class, and you just still hear these tinkle. I mean there's little things like that, but that's just part of part of the teaching. You you've got to sort of like weigh up the pros and the cons, um, sort of thing. But yeah, regular use promotes just sort of normality with them. Um, that's my that's, that's my experience. Yeah, and, and just the last couple before we move on from um, teacher visually, I go back to a point that um, Helen Williams made when I think when she was on the podcast first time round, and we we're talking about teaching mm -hmm. visually, particularly with early years and, and younger students. She she made the point that whilst the visual is is really important in the initial understanding of a concept and so on, it's also important sometimes to return to the visual to take that understanding onto a new level. So I, I could imagine that you've you've kind of got this procedural knowledge of being able to whether it's solve an equation or expand the bracket and so on. But then when you want to think a bit deeper about it, sometimes it's good just to return to the visual, and the visual shouldn't be seen just as kind of this support mechanism that, that's there to, to, to help the students when they're struggling actually mm. it can be there to kind of push their understanding on a bit further because it helps them see things in a different way is, is that yeah. something you'd, you'd agree with an ex oh absolutely yeah going back to the visual to the visual is 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 super important like 
I mean, the classic example, which I'm, I'm not sure if you've, you've seen, but like, um, I, I had no idea what completing the square actually meant until I saw it with algebra tiles. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen it with algebra tiles now. I mean, if you just have a quick Google for completing the square with algebra tiles, hang on a minute, we're actually completing a square here. Yes. It's like that just blew my mind for like at least sort of 10 years. I was teaching completing the square. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, we just halve the coefficient of X and then do a bit of stuff and then we're done. Um, I didn't realize we were actually completing a square. Um, and that the new level of understanding after, after I've been teaching for 10 years. So you still get these surprises. It's like, wow. And like when you when you make the link between Dean's blocks and algebra tiles, and hang on, algebra tiles are just Dean's blocks just in base, base 10. So when, you, when you're doing things like, um, I don't know, 14 times by 12, and, and, you, and you work out all those calculations, so 14 multiplied by 12, so you're going to get 100, you're going to get a 40. Um, is, is that going less? 100 times by 12, just writing this down now. It's hard to do this. Um, so no, 14 times by 12, you've got your 100, you've got your 40, you've got your 20, and then you've got your 8 if you do it in your grid method. Yeah. Um, and then if you do, okay, let's do this expansion of x plus 4 multiplied by x plus 2, and then you do the grid method side by side with that, and you've got x plus 4 and x plus 2. Hang on a minute, what's going on here? Well, we've got our x squared, we've got our 4x and our 2x, and we've got our eight. And let's just compare those. Hang on. If I literally substitute x is two, x is ten in for that, I've got exactly the same calculation. And like, I never real, I'd never made the link between fourteen times by twelve and x plus four times by x plus two before, um, until I'd seen like this this sort of CPD with like the Dean's blocks and the algebra tiles and just little things like that, which are obvious once you've seen them, but they're not obvious in, until you have seen this this image. And the images are so powerful and they stick with you. Like you never sort of yes. forget them. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, John. I'm, I'm, I'm almost sold. So, if, if, if I'm, if I'm here wanting to get started, so I've watched your, um, I've watched your um, maths comp session. I'm on board with prime factorization, but I, I want to get on board with these algebra tiles. That's what I want to start thinking about. Well, where do, where do I need to go, Johnny, or zero pairs or something? Well, where, where do I start as a, as a real novice when it comes to using uh, visual aids? Um, the CPD is important, um, definitely. I mean, literally this week, LaSalle are running a three-part series on algebra tiles. So I think you've missed session one. You can probably catch session two and three if you're quick. Uh, Gary Lamb's running those. So um, and we run through the whole sort of the basics of zero pairs all the way up to sort of solving equations. And then I do a session on um, algebraic proof with algebra tiles as well. Um, so yeah, come and check out some of the LaSalle CPD, certainly. Um, there's loads of stuff um, on the internet now. The algebra tiles, there seems to be more and more videos added every, every day with that. So if you want to do some sort of like self-research, you can. But for me, the biggest thing is getting into the classroom when we can and actually trying these out. Because And I hold my hands up. The first couple of lessons with algebra tiles, they, they didn't go as great as I'd want them to. Uh, getting things like the vocabulary right as well and, 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 and stopping, say, um, basically sort of like... Um, yeah, getting the behavior right, getting the vocabulary right when you use them, getting the modeling right, getting your choice of examples right when you use it. There's loads and loads of things to consider uh, when you're first using these. And it's like, it's almost a bit like being, going back to sort of like your NQT sort of stage. Hang on. Yeah. This is a total new way of teaching for me. Um, and it is hard. It's it's like when you're an NQT trying to deal with behavior, your, your mind's like running like a thousand miles an hour. Um and, and it's just through practice, regular practice, that it gets easier and easier until it becomes second nature, be, 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 until you become sort of fluent in that in that kind of process. So um, for me, yeah, you, you can attend loads and loads of CPD, 
But until you get in the classroom and start trying it out yourself and getting the experience of it, um, that's that's the big one for me. And don't feel bad if your first couple of lessons you come out thinking, "Oh God, that was that was awful. That was a that was a that was a train wreck." Um, because persevere with it. And like for me, like it, it, it's, it's it's almost becoming sort of second nature. I'm like I've still got loads to learn. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like Mark introduces me a new manipulative every every other week. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm, I'm getting there. I've been doing it sort of like, I don't know, four or five years now, and I'm getting there, so absolutely It's, it's it. interesting. Um, Joe Morgan and I, whenever we do our conference <laughs> takeaways, and inevitably we've we've been in a session involving manipulatives, and we, we always have a discussion about it at the end. We always <laughs> come back to you, Johnny, you know, because we always say, we're, we're perhaps sceptics about this because we have those concerns about the time yeah. it takes, the behaviour, the upskilling needed of the And teacher. so was but I, yeah, say, definitely. But yeah. we always say, well, we trust Johnny because Johnny does it day in, day out. He teaches not in some kind of big, posh, private school where there's like four kids in a class mm. who are just hanging on at your every word. You teach, you know, challenging students in, in, a, in a just a normal kind of, you know, comprehensive school and so on. Mm. And yet you swear by this. And whenever I hear that from, from you, I think, no, there's, there's, there's definitely something in this. So hopefully this will inspire listeners to uh, to dig a bit deeper into that. So that's I, ha- great I, uh, I do hope so, yeah, because I do I do feel quite strong strongly about this. That I, I feel as though, yeah they could make a significant difference to the teaching of maths or like nationwide if people do start getting more into these. I mean, and I've, I've said, I've shared the stats on maths, but the, the stats are going in the right direction. So hopefully we can push that to um, push those numbers even further. It'd be, it'd be lovely. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, the final big thing I wanted to talk to you about is, is this, and you've kind of alluded to it already, this notion of behaving mathematically. Mm-hmm. Um, now your, your maths conf session, uh, the virtual one and, and in the previous maths conf in Manchester, we were, were all about behaving mathematically. So what, what does that mean, Johnny? What, what does this phrase behaving mathematically mean? Right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to sh- shorten this down to sort of five words here. Okay. Um, nice. <laughs> Three of the words um, are taken from the uh, Thinking Mathematically book by uh, John Mason, and it's specialise, conjecture, and then generalise. Um, those three words are super important, but then the extra two words I'd like to add on to the end of that is like, uh, before you specialise, what do you question, what's your question? What have, what have you noticed? And then can we start to specialise? Okay, we start to specialise. Can we make some conjectures? Can we generalise these conjectures? Okay, yeah, we can. And now then, how can we extend the problem further? So this idea of noticing, specialising, conjecturing, generalising, and then extending a problem. First off, just looking around you, what problem do you see? Or what, what questions could you ask? Okay, right, how can we make these questions? How can we make sense of this question? How can we specialise? And by specialise, I normally mean chucking in easier numbers to begin with, for example. Okay, so it, it, this happens when I put easy numbers in. Let's try it with a few more easy numbers. Let's work systematically as well. Um, okay, I think this is going to happen. I'm going to make this conjecture now. Okay, um, this conjecture seems to be true. Can we generalise? That normally involves getting to some sort of algebraic sort of generalisation. And okay, how else could we extend this Extend this problem? Now, um, that's all me talking very sort of vague in terms of specific exam- examples. Uh, so if I go through some examples, mm. um, closest rectangles um, is, is one of my favourite tasks. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask kids, okay, for example, let's let's consider a square, a five by five centimetre square. What's its area? And they'll all say, oh, five times five is 25. Then I'll say, OK, right, for this lesson, we're going to define a closest rectangle to be the rectangle if you subtract one from the length and add it to the to the width. 
So if we've got a five by five square, what's its closest rectangle? And they say, oh, it's going to be a four by six, a four by six rectangle. And what's its area? Oh, four times six is, is sort of 24. What do you notice? And that's where the first question comes in. What do you notice? Five times five is 25. Four times six is 24. What do you notice? Oh, it's one less. Okay, let's specialise. Shall we try another case now? All right, let's do seven times seven, 49. What's its closest rectangle? Six times eight, 48. Hang on, 49 and 48. It's one less again. And now we move on to the sort of conjecture stage. Okay, so if I do the closest rectangle each time, um, is it always going to be one less? And then they'll do loads and loads of specialisations. Okay, oh, um, and then depending on where you are with the class as well, you could you could go to the general case of this, of, of sort of like expanding n plus 1, n minus 1, and so on. But then you can extend it as well. Okay, what about the next closest rectangle? What about if you've gone 5 times 5, 25, 4 times 6, um, 24? What about 3 times 7? And then they get a bit disappointed there because they want to say it's going to be 23, um, but it's actually 21. Say, so, oh, don't get too disappointed at this point. Let's keep going. That's another key theme of this Thinking Mathematically book. Let's keep going. Next one, two times by eight. Oh, that's going to be uh, 16. Do you spot any patterns now? Can you make some different conjectures? Oh, we've gone down by one. Then we've gone down by three. Then we've gone down by five. Okay, so we, I, I conjecture the next one's going down by seven and so on. And then you start adding things up. Like, let's, let's start summing these numbers up. One plus three is four. One plus three plus five is nine. One plus three plus five uh, plus seven is, is 16. And then you've got your square numbers. Then all this math starts appearing from this simple problem and then you've got kids wanting to do things like okay 100 times 100 i know that's 10,000 what do you think 99 times 101 is oh it's going to be 9,999 sir and like kids you don't have to persuade kids to do that calculation at that point they're what they're off they want to they want to do it so if you want to get some purposeful practice out of them then then they're away um, and eventually you can go as far as sort of difference of two squares and all sorts with that task um, let me just what, ask, let me just ask you, ask you, Johnny, on 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 that. So there's one question that was burning through my mind whenever I was listening to you talk about um, behaving mathematically in the maths comp thing, and also as you're describing this. And that is, and this this sounds fantastic. I'm just thinking, I'm always interested in this podcast on on the practicalities of, of lessons where when teachers describe things. Whenever you're kind of saying, what do you notice, and what do you think will happen next? What are you doing there? Is it is it, are you chucking that question out and then just picking one kid to answer, or kids discussing in pairs? What how how are you getting the responses back to these questions? And and, and what about the kids who aren't noticing things? Um, well, I'll, I'll, the, the problem that I just went on about, sort of like the five times five, four times six, mm. um, that will be displayed to the whole to the whole class on on the board. And what yeah. do you notice? And I make sure that we've had that discussion that it's one less. So every kid in the room at this point is aware that it, that it's one less. So yes. it does start, it does tend to start off as, as a whole class discussion. Yeah. And then as the sort of sort of task de developed, like certain sort of areas, of the room might, might progress through the task slightly faster than others. So it's almost sort of like your sort of mixed ability sort of teaching going on here. Now I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not a specialist to this. I'm still sort of working, working at this, but like you do find kids getting to certain realizations within the task at different points. And the big thing for me is that um, the two biggest things that you need to be really, really good with the task yourself. You can't just mm -hmm. like, um, you can't just have this task and, and not, and not have done it yourself before the cpd behind the task you need to be really up to speed of the directions that it's likely to go on 
and also you need to be sure that the kids have got enough sort of that that background knowledge that we've talked about the key processes if the kids haven't got those key processes and that background knowledge if they don't know what square numbers are they're not going to get much out of this task at all if they don't know how to if they don't know what odd numbers are or consecutive odd numbers they're not going to get much out of this task at all if they don't know what area is they're not going to get anything out of this task at all so having all that background knowledge is key and you as a teacher making sure that you're pretty confident that the kids have got this before you even attempt tasks like this for me that that is the key so it's, it's kind of twofold, yeah. Can the kids do the key processes, and are you familiar with the task enough yourself uh, that you can you can squeeze out every last sort of drop of maths? Like one of my favourite sort of tasks is just drawing part of a multiplication grid. So like one, two, three, four, and then two, four, six, eight, three, six, nine, twelve, and then four, eight, twelve, sixteen, and getting kids to add up those numbers. And what do you notice? And the total's a hundred, and that's brilliant. You get the total's a hundred. But there is so much mass that you can get out on from that task. And you end up talking about square numbers, Q numbers, triangle numbers. You end up talking about that the, the fact that the, the sum of the cube numbers is equal to the sum of the first X numbers squared. And all sorts of nice relationships come out of this. But none of that's possible unless the kids have got this background knowledge. So there's no point doing these behavior mathematical tasks if kids aren't if kids aren't really, really sort of like up to speed with what what are the prerequisites for this task if that makes sense yeah it it does and again just just to push you a little bit more on this on this practical thing so if we've got kids working at, at different speeds and and going off in different directions mm. what have they got to kind of prompt that is it projected on the board like investigate this try mm. this try this or have they got a sheet in front of them or is it just very much up to them almost like an inquiry that they can take it off in any direction what well, what works best for you in your experience well um I'll have the prompts on the board, like what, like sort of like, um, where else could you take this? But going back to those five words, so the question, the notice, that that tends to not be on the board. The specialising we'll do as a class together normally. Yep. And that'll be a class yep. activity. And then the conjecturing, okay, that's sort of like, that's like you're sharing with the class. What do you notice? What do you notice? What do you notice? Then we'll move on to the generalisation. It's when we get on to the extending sort of part of the task, that's when kids are more likely to be off on their own working. So right. that task that I shared at, um, at the Maths Conf about those, I don't know if you remember, it was those three digits and you choose two digits uh, from them and it's make all the p different possible six-digit numbers you can. Yes. Um, we would work through all of that as a class and that might take sort of like half an hour. But then the, the extension to that task is, okay, you decide how many digits you want to start with and you decide how many sort of um, how many digits you want these numbers to be to be made out of. So you might want to choose four digits and make three digit numbers. And then can you can you can you generalize that? Uh, can you can you sort of specialize conjecture generalize that one? And, and what's your generalization for that one? You might want to do five digits or, or what on. So um, yeah, the specializing in the conjecturing is tends to be done as a sort of a whole class discussion. And then when kids are away, kids will start coming up with their own questions. Sir, what happens if I do this? Can I go and investigate this? Um, and once you get to that point, that's that's really, 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 really nice. Because uh, just to give an example, for example, I was doing some multi-base arithmetic with year sevens earlier on. And then a kid was doing all this. So it was doing like subtractions, additions in different bases. Let's try it in base 10, base 9, base 8. What do you notice? Oh, this is happening, sir. Um, okay then a kid said well sir what if i try it in base 11 or in base 12 i'm like well you invent your numeral for 11 you invent your numeral for a 12 so and i and i get and i guide them at that point so normally we tend to just use a and b once we get past that sort of thing 
and and he was and he was off. So it's when you get to the extension side, then have some prompts ready on your slide. Where else could you take this task? But in the whole, it tends to be sort of maybe like a 20, 30 minute whole class discussion going through the specialised and generalising case uh, conjecturing cases because kids aren't good at this at all. Um, yes, kids are really not good at it. Then they're, they're not very good at um, working systematically. They'll just fire out answers all over the place. <laughs> and I, I'm trying, and I've not cracked it yet, but like every single lesson I seem to be saying, right, can we specialise and can we work systematically? Let's start with an easy case. And what's the next logical case to choose? Yes. Uh, that sort of idea. And trying to get them into that mindset, because you've all seen them fill exam papers and like, like the working out is just all over the place. So I really encourage things like the use of a table and like just increase things by one, see what happens. Um, I'm not there yet. I mean, I'll let you know how it how it goes, but um, I'm trying. And it's just just getting them into that mindset uh, of rather than just randomly attacking a problem, can we can we work systematically? Can we specialize? No, I, I completely agree with, with, with everything you said, Johnny. Just just a couple of questions on this. Um, the kind of obvious one for resource hunters out there is, is where do you get these tasks from? Because I'm, I'm sure we can all think of kind of one or two that have been our favorites. I can think of some of the old classic coursework tasks that I, I've used mm -hmm. in, in similar ways to, to you've described here. But I, I wonder where you get these tasks from, Johnny. And the second question is, um, how often would you be doing something like this? Is this at the end of every topic in a scheme of work? Is it once a half term? When do you do these kind of activities? Uh, so in terms of where I get them from, I'll answer that one first. Um, I mean, Don Stewart, um, the John Stewart website is absolutely fantastic for things like this. Um, Mark's taught me an incredible amount over the last few years in terms of these resources. The Enrich website is fantastic. Um, the, the ATM, their starting points, their points of departure book, if you've not seen those before they're just absolutely brilliant and they have literally there's i think there's four books of points of departure and each of them just has a little prompt where you can just jump straight into that specializing conjecturing so um the atm is uh, is fantastic for that for that sort of stuff but my, my, my main go-to i guess is probably sort of like um your don stewardy type stuff and and the cpd that i've been on um so i've got like this bank floating around my head and it's one of my sort of uh, aims in sort of life i guess is to actually maybe pencil all these tasks down and maybe have like a sort of designated task for every single topic on mass with the, the ideally i guess like sort of like the prerequisites needed by the student to access mm. to to get not just to access the task but to get the the full sort of mathematical sort of um stuff that you can from this task yes. rather than just like okay i've noticed that they sum to 100 and that's it but because i don't know about squares cubes triangle numbers i can't get anything else out of this task so it's like a bank of tasks where yeah this is the prerequisites that the kids need but then also the pedagogy behind the task and as a teacher where can you take this task uh, what what visuals can you use what questions can you have what what extensions can you make to it so yeah that's that's my sources for them the atm is brilliant for that sort of stuff uh, what was the other question? I can't um, remember. How often are you using them? How often do I use them? Well, um, roughly it's sort of like an 80-20 principle, I guess. Uh, don't get me wrong, the vast majority of my lessons is getting kids fluent with processes and then getting them confident, like you say, and then sort of, yeah, um, the intelligent practice, I guess, sort of style of things. And then maybe 20% of the lessons. Um, but it's not, I can't just say it's like four lessons of, 
key processes sure. and stuff and then one lesson in behavior mathematically it doesn't happen like that or quite often a kid might notice something in a class and i might have, and I might have like a what i call a mini behavior mathematically session if, if a kid notices something really interesting then i'm not just going to breeze over it I'm, I'm more than happy to stop my learning episode and say right guys this this has just been noticed um can we can we sort of like specialize this and can we go into the specialized conjecture generalized sort of of root of things so there's no hard and fast answer i don't have timetabled sessions for these behaving mathematically things um i mean the end of a unit having said that the end of a unit is a nice time to do it and try and draw in links with other other areas of mass like i did with the prime factors okay we've done prime factorization let's link it with things like square and cube numbers as well so um hope that answers that question it, it does, but it, it kind of leads me into another question, Johnny. And this is, um, I, I think, well, I, I first came across this from Colin Foster, but I know I, I know Mark McCourt's talked about this as well, that there needs to be this kind of maturation maturation phase before mm-hmm. kids can start to do sophisticated things with, with the kind of core ideas, the procedures that we've taught them. And Colin Foster, in one of his articles on problem solving, talks about potentially a gap of, of two years. He spoke mm-hmm. about this on a podcast, two years after being introduced to an idea before students are, are really ready to do really sophisticated things with it. And my, my fear is with with tasks like these, as you've described, if we, if we use them at the end of a unit where students have just been introduced to a couple of the core ideas that are going to be needed to get the most out of this task, if we talk about limits of working memory or attention or whatever, it is if if too much of their attention is focused on this procedure because it's not overly familiar Mm. to them they simply have they don't have enough left enough attention left to think about the connections drawing in different areas of maths asking the interesting questions pursuing the different lines of inquiry and so on so is Mm. is 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 two two parts to this question i guess is this something you found that sometimes kids simply aren't ready for this this task and and is the implication there that actually we need to rejig schemes of work a fair bit and perhaps leave some of these tasks alone for a while and come back to them months later if not kind of potentially even a year later yeah, I, th- I think you're right, and I think it's it's one of the hardest things for me as a teacher is like when do I do these tasks and and, and getting the ta- the timing right for it. I think in terms of like the the, the sort of main behaving mathematically tasks that I might be wanting to give them, like I, I, you check the prerequisites and make sure that like other than the actual sort of subject, if you are doing it like at the end of a topic thing, say the prime factorization, like if make sure that. You're, you're you're as confident as you can be that the things like the the square numbers or those prerequisites or the, the areas of math that you're going to link to make sure that they're as secure as you can do but it, it's hard you, you you can't guarantee that what what kids remember one day they're gonna they're gonna remember the other day so i i, I wish there was like a, a, a dead straightforward solution to this uh, but but i don't think there is um and sometimes I've done a task more than once with one class, for example. I might have done it in one year group, then then come back to it another year group and say, "Oh, now we now we've done this bit of extra maths, for example. Can we shed a new light on on some of this sort of thing?" Because quite often kids have totally forgotten the task in, entirely, and you get a whole sort of like um whole 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 new lesson out of it. But no, there's no there's no easy answer for that. I wish I, wish I did have an answer, but I, I do know that it, it's 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 been useful for me in terms of making these links with the areas of maths if that makes sense i don't know it's like i I don't like to teach maths in just discrete topics here's a topic move on here's a topic move on here's a topic move on um because that's not what maths is like maths is messy every single topic is linked with another topic in some other way i mean other than stats obviously but every other topic is linked 
in some in some other in some other way. So um, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question there, but because um, it no, is hard, and I've, I've not got my head around the answer myself. No, but it's. I think. I think again, you've you've raised the key point that there's a danger that we we teach we teach the procedure, then we give a rich task on that topic, and then we move on to another topic, teach the procedure, give a rich task. Yeah. But as you say, it's not quite as simple as that because these these rich tasks, if they're good rich tasks, will draw in lots of different areas of mathematics, and it's important as a minimum to assess that prerequisite knowledge before mm. we do the task, but also perhaps going forward to to really look at schemes of work and think right, here's a great task, but it's only great if kids are at this stage. So when is the best time to use this? And that might Mm. not be right immediately after they've been introduced to a core idea. But there's, yeah, big big implications. And it's only a great task if the teachers actually had the time to go through the task themselves, because a task is only as good as the teacher's sort of knowledge behind it. Like it could be more harm than good. Oh, here's a task we've got to answer in two seconds, but you don't know where to take this task any further. (laughs) And um yeah, so that's why I think departmental sort of meetings for me, that they should be all about here's some like sort of really good sort of tasks we can do. Let's work through these. And quite often as a departmental meeting, I've like fired up a Don Stewart task or something like that and we've worked through it for like half an hour of the meeting. And like um, it's a really good use of time, I find, actually going through the maths yourselves because how often do you have the time if you're, if you're a busy teacher to sit down with like an enriched problem or something and work through it from start to finish like... Some people, um, I mean, I, I occasionally do it for fun, just sat at home, but like a lot a lot of the time, you just don't have the time for that. So it's um, a good use of departmental meeting would be for literally just working through these tasks, I think. Here's a great task. Let's see what mass we can get out of it. Uh, I think you're right. And and anytime we've been lucky enough to do that as a department, like people have been excited to do the task, right? Because it's fresh in their mind. They've discovered Mm -hmm. something that they're excited to do with with the kids. Whereas, yeah, yeah, if you just kind of look on a website, perhaps go on Enrich, quickly scan over the teacher's notes. Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Right. We'll give this to the kids. It never works as well as if you've gone through it (laughs) yourself. I think you're important with it. Yeah. When you say exciting as well, it is exciting. Maths is really interesting. Like, for too long in my career, I was trying to make maths exciting by getting them to make jigsaws and stuff. But actually, if you do start like behaving mathematically, maths itself is really exciting and it's really interesting. And it's our job to actually sort of show how interesting maths is rather than trying to make maths interesting. Yeah, it's it's a great distinction. And it goes back, um, again, to draw a line under this. It's a mistake I've made in the past, though. Um, and I'd be interested just on your final take on this is... I've, I've seen tasks myself and I've been excited to do them, but I've been excited because I'm a reasonably good mathematician who's experienced in all the knowledge required to get the most out of the task. And I've given to them to kids at the wrong time. Yeah. And it's just been a frustrating experience for them. And I've got annoyed at them thinking, why aren't you loving this? this yeah. Is why brilliant. can't you remember your square numbers and stuff? Like exactly. That, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's so, it's so complex, isn't it? It's, it really it's you is. As a teacher, yeah, it's so complex. You as a teacher, knowing the task inside and out, you knowing your kids inside and out, because it's, yeah. it's getting that timing right. When is the time to give them this activity? It's it's a challenge, Johnny. It's a challenge. Yeah. Um, right. Let's move on then to, to start to draw things to a close onto your reflections. So I wonder what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about, Johnny? Um, taking as long as you need on a topic. Uh, we have the luxury in our school that we don't sort of like say, okay, you've got two weeks to do this, one week to do this, three days to do this. So we have the luxury in our sort of department of saying, okay, we can take as long as we need on a topic. Now, we can't take that to extremes. We can't spend four months on Pythagoras. But we do say, look, we're not that we're not that fussed as a department if, if your class is on Pythagoras, but your class has moved on to, say, 
trigonometry. So that's one thing, this idea of trying to stop this sort of um, conveyor belt sort of approach. Now, it is hard um, in, in the setting that you are. I mean, the ideal scenario is that everyone's got like a complete sort of like mastery approach and you only move on once every class has got that. We're trying to get that as much of the sort of principles of mastery as we can at our school in terms of, okay, we have this really flexible scheme of work. We know the order in which we want to teach these topics, but um, yeah, take as long as you kind of need. And that's a, a huge dramatic change to how I used to teach, like sort of years and years ago. Like we was literally given three lessons for this topic and you was given like what the titles of the topics were. And like, if you've not covered those three, the, those three topics, that's it tough. You're moving on to the next topic now. <laughs> it, it like the scheme of work was that sort of detailed in my, in my early, in the early years, it was like lesson 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 finished lesson 2.1, 2.2, 2.3 and, and so on. So just having that flexibility to take as long as you need on a topic within reason sort of thing and get as, as, as far as you can into that topic. And that's another beautiful thing about maths is that no matter what topic you take, you can always, you can always extend it further. So if, if a kid has cracked Pythagoras, then you can start looking at Pythagoras in 3D and that sort of stuff. You can, as a general rule, so long as subject knowledge is, is good enough, a teacher should be able to take a topic and, and extend, extend that topic indefinitely until a point where you're ready to move on with it with the rest of the class so that's a that's one thing I've kind of well not changed in my mind about I guess I always knew it was kind of crazy just to carry on plowing through a scheme away but now I've got the luxury of actually okay let's actually do this so like one class might be two or three weeks ahead of another class that sort of stuff um then one thing um, I've added, one thing that I've not changed my mind about, and I saw this on Twitter and it, and it brought it to the forefront of my mind. Do you know um, ragging mock exams, the red yes. and green mocks? I, this is the, probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say today, but I really like it. I really <laughs> like ragging a mock exam. After, and when you say this, it. we're talking like uh, question three is out of three marks. Yeah, question level analysis, like in a spreadsheet with the kids' names down the side, the question numbers along the top. And like every question's just gone red, amber, green, whether they got it right, partly right, or totally wrong. We could and, all be kicking off here, Johnny. Go make your make your case well, for this. Go I just find it real. I, I like to, I like to look for the sort of like I call it the trail of hope with my classes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but like so I'll start at question one and look at all and it tend, as as a general rule, it starts off at really green at question one and gets sort of like red by the end. But I look for the yeah. trail of hope and say, okay, like as a class, just think, I can go question one, you got it right, you got it right, you got it right, and just work my way along the spreadsheet. And normally you can get almost towards the end of the paper and at least someone in the class has got that question right. So I said, if we could put all our brains together as sort of like a collective entity, um, we'd, we'd, get, we'd smash this exam, we'd get almost full marks. So now what we need to do now is we need to plug these gaps. So I'll, I'll fire up the whole spreadsheet on the board and say, like, I'm not making any apologies, we're in this together. This is what you got in the class and, and everybody can see what you got on every single question. Um, and that's available. And some kids might kick off for a little bit. They say, tough, if, if, if you're that bothered, um, then get a letter from your parents and saying, saying, I can't do this. Because it's really useful now because then I'll say, I'll have a couple of lessons. Say, right, you, um, you got this question wrong, but have a look at your mate on that table. They got it right. Just go and ask them for the explanation. Now, I know some of you might be cringing, thinking, oh, God, but their explanation is not going to be as good as your teacher's explanations. And you're right for that. But for the early questions in an exam, say question one to ten, I find the vast majority of the times are really, really simple, quick fixes. 
And then eventually you, you'll get to some point in your rag analysis when you get to say sort of like question 15 on a GCSE paper where it all just drops off a cliff and you get like kind of solid lines of red for questions. And then I say, right, my job as a teacher, right, I'm going to fill those gaps with like, like those solid red questions. That's my job. Nobody can help each other on those. But for these early quick fixes, let's just spend a couple of lessons now just buzzing around and, and try and fix as many of these as you can. And I think um, the sort of quantity of questions that they get fixed, and so long as they, they're well-trained and they do it sort of sensibly, and like um, the thing that, you, that I, uh, you first get this when you try this is kids just literally filling in the answers, the correct answer straight away. So no, that's not, that's not good enough. What you have to do is you have to go to that person that's going to tell you how to get it right. So you have to write the correct answer in, but then also you have to write me a sentence. Now we use green pens. Write me a sentence on that question saying exactly what you got wrong and what you've done to correct it, rather than just going to your mate and say, oh, the answer's seven, and put seven in. So um, just a couple of lessons after each exam, after each mock exam, fire up that spreadsheet, whole class, say, right, class, let, let's fix fix these holes as much as we can. And obviously all the time as well, I'm part of that, and I'm just fixing as many holes as I can just going around the classroom, but kids are just finding people and fixing the holes themselves. So that's why I'm a big fan of um, rags after a mock. I think for a couple of lessons after um I find it really useful. And it kind of also builds that sort of class togetherness as well, that sort of, okay, we're in this together. It's our job to help each other as well, because I think that's an important thing. Getting class culture right is super important. And if you can get to that sort of level of trust where it's okay just to bring everyone's results up, then um, I found it to be a really positive thing. So uh, that's why I've not changed my mind on rags after a mock. Um, Obviously, things like just ragging it for the sake of it and doing nothing with it, that's utterly pointless. But so long as you do something with it, I kind of like a rag. But I'll tell you what, you've, you've made a very convincing case there, Johnny. I like that. A um, couple of things couple of things to say. Um, the first is, like anything, it's, it's how you use it. And as you say, there's no such, like, QLAs could be really good. They could be used mm. really poorly and so on and so forth. And it sounds like you've got a really effective way of using it. It goes back to your point you've made, again, the routines of the class. If this is a regular thing that kids are used to doing after every mark, it just becomes a part of the norm. They spend less time messing around. They mm. see it as valuable and so on. It sounds fantastic. Um, my, my two concerns with with rags have always been the same. That one, if it just becomes an admin exercise that just makes a spreadsheet look a fancy color and then nothing happens, it's, as you say, it's a waste yeah. of time. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I've seen is, is overreactions to rags. And that is, right, everybody got question four on sharing in a ratio wrong. Right, what we're going to do, we're going to spend the next week teaching the kids how to share in a ratio, wherein actually... If you look at the question itself, it may have been mm. something about the wording of the question, some subtlety about it. It's my issue's always been whenever we start tagging questions with topics, inevitably we start losing the subtleties of, of what that question was involved with. And mm. then it leads to this overreaction where, right, these are the five topics we need to work on from this mark. Let me reteach you these five topics when no, actually it's it may be something a bit more, a bit more specific than that about the question yeah. itself. But I think with the way you're describing, you can get around both of those problems problems right they don't sound like insurmountable issues yeah well quite often i'll not even bother to write what topic the question was on the top of the Mm. spreadsheet i'll just literally have question number one to 23 because for that very reason you said um it might be a ratio question but it might be one of those weirdly worded ones which just throws everyone off so i'll just normally just have the question numbers and and okay and when we get to that question let's see what that question was actually about rather than trying to give it some sort of pigeonhole slot it into some yeah. sort of actual topics yeah so i don't i tend to not bother doing that uh, yeah and the overreaction principle yeah 
sort of like, okay, here's here's all their gaps, and now like this is what you have to do now for the next sort of month, fill all these gaps. Now it's normally just a couple of lessons after a mock, and I just the time it takes is, is virtually none. It's just like one to twenty three along the bottom, copy and paste your class list in, and then just fill the numbers in and quite often i've got the kids just to, to to shout out those numbers as well like join a register or something so in terms of the admin time yeah try and keep that to a minimum and only do it if you're going to do something useful with it but just yeah don't go overboard on it don't use it as your sort of like um only piece of information that's what you've got to teach now for the next sort of two months or something like that yeah i like it i like it and final reflection johnny i don't know if you've kind of answered this if it's the same answer it's no problem at all but is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now uh yeah um i've put down i've put down a few things for this i put twitter like but i don't even know if edu twitter was a thing back in 2004 but for me so. it's so. it's super useful for me the amount of sort of like time once you've got because people say oh i ain't got time for twitter it's like well if you actually sort of like invest a bit of time the sort of paybacks that you get like it always amazes me like people haven't heard of like sort of like what what to me like are obvious resources like um sort of like don stewart people haven't heard of that but he's like every time you load up twitter chances are you're going to see a resource from don stewart on there and, and the amount of time it saves you um another thing the impact of good quality subject specific cpd and i know i've mentioned about a million times but another massive thanks to mark for that um um, because he's sort of like really opened my eyes. And a big shout out to sort of like Marcia and the rest of my maths conf- sort of like gang that I knock about with them. The, once you've experienced good quality CPD, it, it becomes addictive, I find, and you just crave more and more and more, um, which has led me to sort of like me getting this sort of like job with a cell now. I get, now I get to actually deliver my own CPD, which is nice. So, um, yeah, those are my two big things, um, Twitter and the, imp- and the impact of good quality CPD. Very, yeah, very good. Superb, Johnny. Um, well, it's time for your big three now. Um, and again, for, for, for listeners who aren't aware of this, this is where guests choose three either websites or blog posts that they recommend our listeners check out. And I'll put links to these in the show notes. So what are you going to go for, Johnny? Uh, I've gone pretty pretty safe with these, to be fair. Um, I've, <laughs> but I have, um, these, are, these are websites that I use constantly in my teaching. Um, the first one everyone's heard, well, everyone's heard of all three of these, I'm sure. So the first one is Don Stewart. And I, and I use him as a, a massive inspiration for my sort of behavior, mathematically tasks, as I like to call him. Um, I'm sure loads of people have heard about you. I imagine he's probably been named several times as a, as a your sort so, of a big three. The second so. one is um, a local lad leads, um, Dave Taylor, in his increasingly difficult exercises. Nice. Um, they're fantastic. Absolutely love those. I've been doing a sort of virtual lessons online and they've been a godsend in terms of sort of like their differentiation from easy to hard because you're teaching this virtual class of 30 odd people and you don't know where there are but so these the ability is to project these questions up and like they've got some easy openers and some more difficult ones and then people are sort of like dming you in the private chat saying can you help me on 14 when someone else is saying can you help me on question two or something they've been a godsend and it's just a reminder how useful they are so if you're not checked out those uh, please do and then the third one, um, I guess he's kind of got too big for people to mention him anymore. So I thought I'd just bring it back down to reality. Corbett Maths is yeah. he's just a legend and, and he should be on every top three list anyway because his, his textbooks exercises, uh, which is which is adding, um, the fl- especially the fluency and the reasoning ones at the end of his textbook exercises, um, I take quite a lot of inspiration for those as well because sometimes he has some really good ideas and, I'll, and I might look at a question and think, right, if with a bit of tweaking and a bit of sort of generalisation, I can turn that maybe into a sort of behaving mathematically task. 
And in fact, I'll own up now that um, that prime factor sort of um, uh, sequence, like 300 to 600 to 150, I first saw that idea on on one of um, Corbett's sort of textbook exercises. And I was like, oh, that's really, really cool. So yeah, Don Stewart, Dave Taylor, and then uh, Corbett Maths are my big three. You can't argue with that choice, Johnny. They're they're, they're superb, and and as you say, with with Corbett stuff, there, there is a danger. You're right that it just it's obvious, but yeah. but it needs mentioning. It needs, and particularly as you say, the textbook stuff is 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 phenomenal. Um, well, Johnny, this this has been an absolute pleasure. This um, I've wanted you on the show for ages, and we finally kind of got got to nail in a date down, and it's it's been an absolute pleasure because it's been wonderful speaking to you today, but also just seeing your work develop. And what I love is somebody will just put a request out on Twitter and like 24 hours later, it's appeared on MathsBot. It's, it's incredible work ethic that you've got and an incredible generosity uh, that you've, you, you've kind of provided the profession with God, more resources than, than, than perhaps most other people have a really high quality things. And as you say, the, 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 the kind of things that you can project straight up in, uh, in front of your class in terms of the randomly generated stuff, but also there's, manipulatives on there that if you really put the time in to think how they could be used and attend the CPD or read up on them, you can just, yeah, I, I'm already sensing just how powerful this uh, this could be. So Johnny, for all you do and for your time today, um, just thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Craig. Cheers. Thank you very much. There you have it. There was my interview with maths teacher and online guru, Jonathan Hall. Um, I hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Um, It was fascinating for me to talk to Jonathan for, for two reasons. One, I always love to speak to practicing teachers. They're, they're my favorite guests, if, if I'm honest, because they're the people day in, day out who are trying things out with students, can reflect on their practice and so on. As I don't have a regular timetable this year and I can only get into schools sporadically, or and in fact, at the moment, not at all, um, it's, it's very hard for me to try out my ideas regularly. I, I can't think of something the night before and then just try it with my students the next day like I, I was able to in the past. I have to wait till I've got a school booking wait till I've got a class to try it out with or wait till I'm lucky enough to go into my school in, in Bolton and try things out there. Whereas Jonathan, as he said, he can he can think of something on a Sunday, he can try it out on a Monday and then Thursday and Friday, he can talk to teachers about it in terms of CPD. It's a really, really nice balance. So I loved hearing Jonathan's reflections on his teaching practice just in general. But also the second reason I really enjoyed speaking to Jonathan there was um, similarly to when I spoke to the likes of uh, John Corbett and um, people who put Put their time in to create these online resources just just blows my mind um again not with the not with the view to, for, for profit jonathan's not not charging for these things um just just with the view of as jonathan said himself to help himself um like he considers himself lazy which is the opposite of what jonathan is he builds tools that's going to save him time but in doing that he builds tools that not only save us all time but certainly for me and i'm sure i speak for many listeners here and make our teach and make our teaching better make us help our students understand concepts better it's just just incredible stuff so it's fascinating for me just to get a window into Jonathan's mindset why he created this how he puts the hours in and, and so on and so forth 
So um, three quick takeaways. I'm still trying to use the lesson that I, I, I promised a, a number of episodes ago where I'm going to try and keep these takeaways a bit shorter. They, they used to ramble. I, I've done half hour takeaways in the past. So I've just picked three out from, from Jonathan's that um, I've been reflecting on in the days since I recorded uh, the interview. The first is Jonathan's favourite failure. I really found that interesting. Um, Tarsia, those of you may know who followed my work for a number of years, I was a massive Tarsia advocate. Um, I've still got my Tarsia collection on my Mr. Bart Maps website. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the biggest Tarsia collection in the world. It would have to be. I know a lot of people have nicked them and tried to sell them on Tez uh, over the past few years, but they're still there available for free. I'll put a link to these in the show notes. But I used to use Tarsias every flipping lesson. My kids were sick of the sight of them. But uh, the mistake I've made looking back is I used to use them, well, Firstly, as, as kind of traditional jigsaws, but first time would be lost because I would just give out the pieces of paper and the kids would be snipping them up with scissors and it would all be kicking off with bits of paper bobbing around. Kids would be snipping the corners off the triangles. There'd be stuff going missing left, right and centre. That was just dead time. That, that was just pointless. But also, um, just in terms of the, the matching up, whenever I look at some of the activities I used to use, I've got to ask myself the question, were students getting any benefit above and beyond just doing these questions in the format of a worksheet? And maybe there was something about the the setup of this Tarsi that, that engaged the students a bit more. It felt different. I'm a great believer in, in things feeling different, being an important factor in teaching and getting students sometimes to put that extra effort in there. So maybe there was a part of that about it, but that was kind of negated by the fact that my kids were doing Tarsi's every lesson. A worksheet would have been a refreshing change for some of my kids back, back in the day. Um, but as I, as my teaching developed, and certainly over the last few years, I've, I've looked hard at my use of Tarsi's in the past, and I've come to the conclusion that a lot of it wasn't great. Um, I'm still a big, big fan of, of ways I used to use it. I used to call it Tarsia Convince Me. And that's where I would give my students a completed Tarsia. And students would have to have a look through and find... Uh, find errors that I've made in there, convince me that they were wrong, um, and then come up with a correct answer, and I'd have gaps in there, and students would have to fill in those gaps. So I think I think there's really smart ways of using Tarsia, um, above and beyond the kind of traditional card sort way. And that, that come, brings me back around to the point that we were discussing with Jonathan earlier on in the conversation. It's not the type of resource that determines whether it's a good idea to use it or not. It's the resource itself. So it's it's not true that all card sorts are great. And it's equally not true that all card sorts are rubbish. As, as Jonathan said, some of the standard units ones are absolutely incredible. And likewise, it's not true that all worksheets are great or, or, or conversely, all worksheets are rubbish or all sequences of intelligent practice questions are great and all, all, uh, or all are rubbish. It all depends on, on the resource itself, how appropriate it is to use. And it goes back to something that Jonathan was talking about that um, in terms of the, the behavior mathematically tasks, whenever we give our resource to students or consider using it, we've got to really know it inside and out ourselves. Have we done the questions? Have we thought about the sequencing? Have we, have we spotted something in that resource that if we had just give it a cursory glance would have perhaps bubbled up and caused problems? So I thought that was an interesting reflection on, uh, on Jonathan's favorite failure. I really, really enjoyed that one. Secondly, 
QLAs. Now, it's all kicking off here. Um, I, I've got a, a real mixed relationship with QLAs. I, I used to absolutely dread any time we did some kind of mock exam or end-of-term assessment, because I knew a QLA was coming, and they take flipping ages. It's bad enough marking, but then you have to enter in every single mark for every question onto a spreadsheet. Oh, God. I, I've, I've been known to pay teachers to do that for me, give them a fiver if they'll put my numbers in and sort of, because I just can't be bothered. I, and... And this goes back to Jonathan's point that if we're not actually going to do anything with it, then it's an absolute waste of time. And I completely agree with that. But the, the point I was trying to make was that I've seen teachers overreact to these QLAs. So just because students have got a question on solving linear equations wrong, all of a sudden for the next three lessons, we teach our students solving linear equations whenever actually... The question could have been a bit of a weird one, or actually the question wasn't about solving linear equations. This is a point I meant to make with Jonathan, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it now. There's a real inherent problem with QLAs in terms of the tagging. You, what normally happens is we have a list of kind of tags that we assign to each question. And these are sometimes GCSE objectives. Maybe the GCSE is broken down into a hundred skills or whatever you want to call it. And we assign each, each question to one of these tags. So then we get a lovely picture of um, the coverage of a mock exam, which areas of the GCSE it's covered and where the strengths and weaknesses are. But let's imagine that you get a question on, uh, it's a solving linear equations question, but there's a couple of features about it. So first let's imagine that the variables on both sides. And then let's imagine that actually the equation involves fractions. So maybe it's a third of X minus blah, 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 blah. And the students get it wrong. Well, if we just tag that as solving linear equations, we've lost a load of information there. Did students get it wrong because of the structure of the linear equation? Well, we've no idea because we've just tagged it as solving linear equations. Or did they get it wrong because actually their, their fraction um, competency is lacking? Their ability to either add fractions or multiply or whatever is required to solve the equation. Well, we don't know. We're having to kind of play a bit of a guessing game because of how we've how we've tagged it. So what happens is we just teach the whole thing. Well, I certainly do. We kind of just teach the whole thing or play a bit of a guessing game with it. Um, the, the kind of way to combat that, of course, is to make it really specific. So you start tagging the questions with solving linear equations with a variable on both sides where fractions are involved. But then it just gets so unwieldy, it gets, gets out of hand. So the way I've used those in the past, I think was re really, really problematic. But what I much prefer is Jonathan's way. He's not even bothering with all of this tagging nonsense. He's just, he's just going for it in terms of numbers and he's teaching the students the specific questions. And I really, I really liked a couple of things here. I like the, the, this, this phrase, the trail of hope. He's looking for those greens. He's, he's hoping that actually some students in the class have managed to get a question right. So he can say to the kids collectively, we can nail this paper. I really, really like that. But then he's just getting those early questions sorted. The students doing them themselves. So there's projecting that full QLA on the screen and saying to the kids, right, you can see the people who've managed to get these questions right. Go to them and get, you know, ask for help, get it sorted. Now, my immediate reaction when I hear something like that is to cringe thinking, oh God, I can imagine just the chaos there. But this goes back to the routines Jonathan's talking about. If his kids are used to doing this, if this is a regular thing they do at the end of each mock exam and they realize the importance of it and they realize that they're doing this so that they can understand things better, then they're going to put the effort in. They're going to take it seriously. They're not going to misbehave. Routines are the key to this. The key to so many things, the more I think about this. 
And then Jonathan says his job is to help the students with the later questions, where it's the big trail of red all the way down. So again, it goes back to what we were saying about resources. There's no such thing as a good, sorry, card sorts aren't inherently good or bad. QLAs aren't inherently good or bad. It's it's the intricacies, it's, it's how they're used. And I've used them poorly in the past and I'm starting to reflect on that a lot these days. And the final takeaway that I wanted to talk about, of course, is this use of, of teaching visually, for want of a, a better expression, whether it's using manipulatives or visuals and so on. Now, for me, the, the problem I've had is there's a very high fixed cost here. I can't just dive into using algebra tiles. I can't just dive into using double-sided counters. There's a high fixed cost in terms of, uh, on my end, in terms of me researching how to use these properly, the, the right questions to ask, the sequence of examples and so on. And then there's a high fixed cost in terms of my students getting them familiar with these, these manipulatives, with these visuals, and potentially them going slower than their classmates who aren't using them um, in those initial stages. But from all I hear from people, it seems such a worthwhile investment to make. But I've just got to reconcile those two things. I've got to find the time myself and then I've got to get my students on board. It also, I, it's, if you use these early enough, I'm a secondary school teacher, if you use these with year sevens, it eases that transition from primary because every primary colleague I speak to, and I've spoke to um, several on this podcast, most notably, of course, Helen Williams in terms of early years, will tell you that these are a regular part of students' mathematical experience and <laughs> to, to kind of just remove them when they come to secondary feel, feels unfair. So a regular use of them from an early age can, can be really powerful, but also... Again, the more I think about this and the more I see examples of this, using these later on, even with year 10s and year 11s who have never seen, for example, algebra tiles before, might just make some of these abstract ideas a bit more concrete and just help them sink in a little bit more. So what can we do about this? Well, what I've done um, on my online courses, and I'll give you this catchy URL again, craigbarton.podia.com. Um, I've got a free course that I... Uh, I've repurposed an interview I did a couple of years ago with Bernie Westercott, um, and it was filmed. It was done in the OP, OUP offices in, in Oxford. And it was I've broken this down into loads of mini videos, and it's one of my favorite all-time videos. Bernie takes us on a journey of how to uh, introduce perhaps uh, the beginnings of number, negative numbers, and then simultaneous equations, visually using equipment, using manipulatives, and so on and so forth. Um, and what I've done at the end of that course, and I've been doing that over the last few days, is um, I've added a new section called, I think, Useful Links from Others or something like that. And there I've put links to my favorite explorations of teaching visually that I found useful myself. So I've, that's where I've put a link to Jonathan's uh, session that he did at MathsConf, where he looks at using prime factor tiles. I've put links to some of Pete Mattock's work. I've put links to some of the best stuff that I've found out there that, that really brings this topic to life for me. So it's completely free. So if you've watched the Bernie episode, just still just log into the course, just sign up for the course and, and then just hop onto those links at the bottom and maybe you'll just find something super useful. And if you find anything useful yourself that you think needs to be as part of that list, drop me a message and I'll add that to the course. So there you go. There are my takeaways. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that interview with Jonathan. Um, I've, I'll tell you what, I've got some absolute crackers coming up. I'm going to take a bit of a break away from um, talking about math specifically. I'm going to delve into a couple of uh, areas that have inter uh, interested me for a long, long time. We're going to do behavior um, with, with Adele. 
and we're going to do the one I've been waiting to do for years that I've been banging on about, which is sleep. We're going to talk about sleep. We're going to get Mark Healy back on the show to talk about that. So they're coming up. So hopefully they'll be of interest both to uh, your maths colleagues, but also your non-maths colleagues. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in, for listening to these uh, episodes. Thank you to Jonathan for giving up his time for podcastthemes.com, for the lovely jazzy music, and for you, my lovely loyal listeners. You take care of yourselves, and I'll look forward to seeing you on a podcast in the near future. Bye for now.